And we have next, it's the relentlessly downbeat and weirdly specific tale of a Russian Jewish immigrant experience, political grifters, Tammany Hall, New York's early urban development. You know, for kids. It's the American tale. More like American. An, what's that? An American tale. It's a, yes, I'm sorry. It's not there may the. Be many American tales. This is one of them. What is the American tale? George Washington tell, chopping down that cherry tree, not telling a lie. Nah. Yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> Pretty lame suggestion, actually, when you think about it. Abe Lincoln splitting those logs. I don't know. No idea. You have no idea what the American mm. tale is. Casablanca. Yeah, that's a good well. Is that even an American no. tale? <laughs> told by Americans. <clears throat> told by Americans about American displaced yeah. and people trying to get to America. I think the American tale has to happen in America, probably. Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane could be the American tale. Awfully cynical view of America. It's a pretty America. cynical view. But uh, hey, I guess if you look at America today, Citizen Kane's kind of the father of it all, isn't he? That's my hot take. Are we doing Citizen Kane this year? I don't think we are. No, but we are doing Casablanca. We are doing Casablanca, which is exciting. Cool. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that are exciting, I'm excited to talk about one of the weirdest children's films of the 1980s. Maybe it's not one of the weirdest children's films of the 80s. It's one of the weirdest mm, popular. Yes. Uber popular children's films. Yes. It's not Return to Oz. But in terms of things that we all remember from our childhood, at least if you're millennials or Gen X or whatever we are then this one's pretty weird. But you may never have thought about how weird it was, but that's why you listen to podcasts. So, American Tale, Steven Spielberg and Don Bluth, one of two team-ups. We're here to talk about it today. And who are we, you might be wondering. Well, I'm an all-American boy. I chopped down a cherry tree and didn't tell a lie in that cherry tree's face. My name is George Nathan Alberson Washington. Boy, I don't like anything about that introduction, but I'm not going to delete it. But I just want you to know that I'm full I of shame. I cannot tell a lie. I'm full of shame. <laughs> I'm full of shame. Yes. <laughs> I like to imagine that that story ends with little George getting drugged to the woodshed because he still chopped down the cherry tree. I don't know if that's how the story ends. But I think he's, his father's like, here's a nickel. Thank you for not telling a lie. And he's like, cool, I can go to the nickel store like a millionaire. Because nickels were worth a lot back then, or something like that. I don't know. It's been a long time since anyone's told me that story. Actually, I don't even know if anyone... Maybe I've only ever heard people say that that story is not true, as opposed to ever in my life someone saying, have you heard the classic tale of George Washington? I don't know. Your thoughts, Ben? I have no thoughts, except I think I've heard that as not a lie. As not a lie? From some point in my childhood, early childhood. Early childhood. Like before you went to bed, your <laughs> your parents would be like, <laughs> well, every night if we're being honest. <laughs> yeah. If we're being honest. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I guess I didn't learn that lesson. Lies. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the other one uh, I always think of is Abraham Lincoln was working as a store clerk and some guy, he accidentally overcharged some guy and then he spent the whole day walking all the way to the guy's town so he could give him back the 40, never heard that. 40 cents or whatever. No, I've never heard that either. Well, he was a great man, Abraham Lincoln. And one day we'll do Steven Spielberg's best movie, Minority Report. <laughs> All right, I'm ashamed of that too. But we're, I think that that was a, sol a quality joke, but I could have made a better pull. I should have said best movie, War Horse, or the BFG or something like <laughs> there that. There you go. <laughs> yeah, Minority I mean, Report's actually pretty it's good. It's pretty good. Yeah. But Lincoln ain't it. 
No, no, no. Lincoln's not his best movie. It might be his best late period movie, in my humble opinion, but that's for another day. If, if you had, if you, I mean, if the joke was about Raiders or something like that, right. that is Jaws. Right. I don't know if I think Minority Report's actually a good movie. I know I like watching it. It's fun. Or a lot of it's fun. Well. Uh, I'm not sure that it's good. It's a good question. I think it's good. I don't know. I feel, like it, I feel like it holds up, but I haven't seen it in a while. But part of what holds up about it, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of dopey stuff in it, but you think yeah. of how predictive. Yes. That movie was. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that way. I wonder if I watched it now, if I wouldn't be like kind of annoyed, not the movie's fault, but just sort of like, this is so close and yet. So far away. Tom Cruise has to put on gloves before. Right. It's like all this yeah. kind of goofy mm-hmm. stuff that it's actually. It's just so shaped. Like, what's the aesthetic of Tony Stark? What's well, Tom Cruise and right. Minority Report? And so many different things like that downstream. Mm-hmm. Right. And you watch old, our old quote unquote Marvel movies, and they're actually getting to the point where they begin to are beginning to feel a little out of touch. I don't know. It's weird. It's like we watched The Matrix not too long ago for this podcast, a couple of years now, I guess. But The Matrix actually holds up as a period piece now. Like, it's just like, oh, nobody uses any of that technology. His computer looks like an old 90s computer. It's mm-hmm. decades old now. It's just not of our time. It successfully made the leap into not like, oh, this feels old, but just this is vintage now. And a lot of things are like that, but Minority Report might be in that weird liminal space where it's not quite fun and vintage and it's not quite, and it might be in there for a long time because it was so predictive. So I don't know. We're not here to talk about Minority Report though. In fact, a little ball just told me that in our future is a discussion of the American tale, not the American tale, an American tale, if we can ever get there. And in order to get there, I need to introduce the other podcasters. So we have Ben Solzer. Yep. He's a tough Italian street urchin. Stick Tony with- Balboni. <laughs> <laughs> Stick with me, Nilly. <laughs> a fun fact, Don Bluth thought that no one would be able to remember or like the name Fievel. He thought it would not catch on. He argued vehemently against it. Steven Spielberg really wanted it because it was his grandfather's name, who was a Jewish immigrant. And, of course, Spielberg won. But the compromise and was right and was right and of course everybody knows Fievel and everybody knows Fievel's Western adventures and all this stuff. But the compromise was that he would be called Philly for a large chunk of the movie. But of course, no one walks away from that movie thinking of him as Philly. Philly. Yeah, no. But I guess in Don Bluth's mind, maybe we would, mm-hmm. and that would make us so much more eager to accept him. So, <laughs> nah, I don't know. Don Bluth, virulent anti-Semite. Jake, speaking of virulent anti-Semites. <laughs> Jake's How is that one? <laughs> Jake doesn't support them at all. Jacob Mensel, he's the pastor who's a master of cinema. And what is... You didn't say what I was. Oh, sorry. You're the preacher who's a teacher of cinema. There we go. I said you were an all-American Italian yeah. street urchin. Yeah. I guess you did. What's Jake? He's a, a drunken Tammany <laughs> Hall... Politician. Honest Jake. Honest Jake. Honest Jake. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All the things that kids care about. All right, guys. What is your history with an American tale? Ben, we'll start with you. Grew up watching it from my earliest days. Your papa would play the fiddle. Yep. When I was in my crib before I could understand. Your mama would turn on American tale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just saw it a lot. Mm-hmm. It was a favorite. Did you see this or Five Goes West more? This. This. Yeah. 
And then when Five Goes West came out, we saw it several times. But yeah, this one. But then there was some point, I don't know what age it was. I mean, I don't think after Five Goes West, I ever saw this one again, I want to say. Can't remember seeing it again. He went west. He went west. That was it. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Story over. Took the franchise with him. Yep. Uh, I grew up with Five Goes West. I mean, I remember it from... It was a VHS that my brothers had, or maybe I'm young enough that I had it too. I don't really remember, but we watched Five Goes West over and over and over and over and over on this very podcast and other podcasts. I've said the line, morons trigger the mouse trap many times because it's just stuck in my brain. All this stupid John Cleese-isms that, Catterwall and, and Jimmy Stewart-isms and <laughs> yep. let her rip, kid, and all this stuff. I mean, I the lazy eye. The lazy eye. Yeah, I, I probably <laughs> quote that movie verbatim and i think i saw it first i think i had to go backfill my american tale and then i saw american tale i remember at a sleepover i remember we were all crowded around a little like 13 inch tv and we watched it and it was very exciting but it was striking as a kid who had seen american tale part two first that part one was dark and scary and like the second yeah. one the second one i don't think has anything like that it's just pure children's slapstick you have that tarantula who chases him and tries to get him yeah there's some yeah but that's it there's not the existential drama of being separated from your family yeah. and being thrown into a sweatshop and wandering the streets and having orphan street kids pick on you and yeah it's really got everything it's got it all. It's got it all. It's amazing. Insects crawling out of <laughs> sewer pipes to to be eaten by some you. mutant alligator <laughs> <laughs> wave monsters. I forgot about the wave monsters. Yeah, me too, man. That thing well, straight out of the id. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I care for the wave monsters, but we'll talk about it. Yeah, I just it was crazy. I, and I also, I think the old west is like every kid knows the old west, even growing up in a time. Or, did. or yeah, maybe maybe our kids don't, but. In my time, at least, and certainly in my parents' time, like the old, all those tropes. Oh, it's the sheriff. It's the bat. Like that all was very readily accessible. Whereas all the tropes of the immigrant experience, the, I mean, like I was making fun of at the beginning, like Tammany Hall and the streetwise Italian kid, like those weren't things that I really connected to. Or this might have been my first experience with them watching this movie. This might have been my first experience with them watching this movie. Jake, you're. American Tale history? I grew up with it. I remember seeing it in theaters, which is weird. That's really um, weird. You would have been two. Yeah, I would have been. But I, I have a memory of seeing it in theaters. Huh. But I have lots of weird memories from early in life. So. Yes, that's a fun fact about Jake is he has a remarkably specific memory for the first five or so years of his life that most people don't have. Yep. And then a gap and then memories again. But yeah, anyhow, that that's my history with it. So I would say shaped a lot of those tropes or establish them in my mind is just part of my childhood. Yeah, it's one of those things that kids experience where you see the parody before you see the real version. You understand the Simpsons version of something before you understand the talk on it. Everybody's computer's going off before you understand the actual version. So you have this movie that's playing on all these tropes and for you it's just an introduction to the tropes. Do you guys have any other sort of history or relationship with the films of Don Bluth. I mean, Land Before Time. Land yeah. Same Land kind of time. thing. Although Land Before Time has like all kinds of fun associations with classic Pizza Hut. Sure. Because they carried these toys and stuff. I remember going 
to see it in theaters and going to Pizza Hut and wanting all the things. And so it's got some some of that same sort of like full 80s, 90s childhood experience kind of vibe wrapped up in it. Another thing like that is the Aristocats, mm-hmm. which I never really like, I don't think we ever saw that in theaters. I didn't quite grow up with that, but I remember all the McDonald's toys and the stuff around that too. And Which is weird. I don't think that McDonald's this- McDonald's breakfast huh. with my dad. And, it doesn't really happen anymore because Aristocats is from 1970, but Disney used to do, especially- Pull during, it out of the vault. Yeah, before the Renaissance, when they needed money, huh. they would just pull one of the classics out of the vault. And then they do a full <laughs> release with McDonald's toys. All that, they'd recycle everything like it huh. was a new thing for each- generation of kids right so this movie american tale actually opened against lady and the tramp from 1954 or whatever it was and i think lady and the tramp actually beat it although it made more money overall it it lasted longer but opening Hmm. weekend if i'm remembering correctly it's somewhere in my notes maybe i'll get to (laughs) it but lady and the tramp and then went against another one there were two disney did this one have a theatrical re-release did american tale yeah I'm sure it probably did, but I don't. I don't know. I mean, not a famous one. No, nothing that I came across in the research. I guess not a going to those Disney re-releases was a thing. Sure, that I definitely did, and being part of that whole experience. And that Batman was another one of those like merchandise, the Tim Burton Batman stuff, the merchandise and all the things tied up with all, absolutely everything. Yeah, well, it's weird. I guess for all of us, those two Don Bluth movies, his two Spielberg team ups are kind mm-hmm. of seminal childhood movies. And for me, actually, especially Land Before Time, I think we had the VHS for Land Before Time and, and, we, and we watched it a lot. And I was a big dinosaur kid. I loved dinosaurs. And so Land Before Time was pretty special to me at a certain point, although I really have not seen that one and since I was a young, young kid. But I remember it as being very scary, very primal, very sad when his mom died, all that kind of stuff. There's definitely an edge to both those movies that you don't see in Disney. Yeah. So it's got, I think, that working for it. I um, think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. Although I didn't see Land Before Time as much as a kid. I remember liking it a lot. I remember being vaguely aware of it as, oh, this isn't Disney, and it does, it feels off somehow. Like, the animation just feels different than what I'm used to. Not off in a bad way, but just, uh, this is very similar to a thing that I'm very familiar with, and yet- But it's not. It's not. Mm-hmm. The story's a little different. The storytelling yeah. style's a little different. And there's a there's an edge that you have to go back to early Disney to find. Yeah. We have to go back to Pinocchio to get something that plays with real childhood fear and anxiety and mm-hmm. drama and tries to illustrate your bring your sort of childhood id to life in right. places. Yeah. And arguably Disney learned that lesson in the Renaissance, which starts with Little Mermaid in late 80s and then goes into Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and all that stuff. But also all those movies had big Broadway style soundtracks and really funny humor. And they they were just a much more balanced diet. So even though Ursula was a scary sea witch, you're not getting too much of her and you're getting a lot of other things. Yeah, it it, it punctures the whatever fear or anxiety you might feel. There's some scary scenes, but you don't feel the weight of... Jafar doesn't hang over Aladdin the way that Fievel's existential <laughs> experience hangs over him hangs over like even yeah. the, even when five was being cheered up by the pigeon dude in this it's still like well he needs to be cheered up because everything is terrible and when he meets i, I guess when he meets dom de Louise, he, he, that that's kind of a puncture in this movie but it happens 
really late in the movie and it's mm-hmm. almost kind of weird it almost feels like a spielberg note or a studio note well then you just, just kind of totally keep going back right? to it right yeah. so it's like it just so it's going to keep teasing his hope and crushing him raising right. his hope and crushing him and teasing your hope and he's going to walk above them as they walk beneath I them that as a kid. i, I loved that as a kid in He's going to hear the music, but it's going to be the gramophone. He's going to hear the music, but this time it's going to be warranty rat. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to, he's going to solve all the problems. Every, the, my, the cats are going to go to Hong Kong and everybody's, his parents are going to find out that he's alive. And then he's going to end up wandering. He's going to end up wandering the streets and have his moment of just angry bitterness. Right. Like, with the orphans who won't be saved by the end of the movie. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> yeah. I I liked all that about Don Bluth films as a kid. I just remember liking, I liked Fievel because it was, or American Tale, because it had that. But that's that what you edge. call it as a kid. You always called it Fievel. That's what everybody called it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe so. Yeah, I, I didn't. I, I, I mean, I, I didn't dislike it, but I just, I found it. It was effective. Like it was, uh-huh. it was scary. I definitely, if you'd asked me, I definitely would have said that American Tale Two was my favorite. Yeah, be- I think that every. Uh, well, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think that that's probably how most kids felt. But I, I remember really. I mean, it's the same way like Back to the Future Two or mm-hmm. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You said it in the Old West. You make it fun. You give the kid version of. Back to the Future 3. Mm-hmm. Is that what I say? Yeah, no, 2 you, is you, the super dark. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Yeah, 2 is super dark. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> the land yeah, of I, Biff. I, I, I meant 3. I'm, yeah. I, I know it. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, fig- it, I figured. Anyhow, you just make the fun Western, play with the tropes of all the movies that your dad likes, but it's something that is made for you. Yeah, well, and there's, yeah. there's a lot of slapstick. I mean, Tiger gets chased by a lot of dogs, and then he falls into the water, and <laughs> what do you know? There's a dogfish. So, I mean, yeah. I forgot about that. That that stuff was funny to me when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, I, and but but part of the draw of a movie like this, I think, as a kid, I don't know. It, maybe it keys off of, and maybe we'll talk about this later. Maybe it keys off of your relationship with your dad. Mm-hmm. I, to me, I associate this movie with actual real feeling of. I remember having moments of being terrified, you know, something would happen to my dad or that we would be separated or whatever. But also that never, that never happened. And part of the reward of the movie in that the 75 minutes of separation is the comfort of the reunion and, and and the comfort of dad's there and dad's still there for you, which is part of what it's playing with that is really potent and powerful. Right. Well, that was explicitly Don Bluth's strategy what he said is kids can take any amount of trauma so some so long as there's a happy ending you cannot have a sad ending in the children's movie was his stated philosophy but you can have as much dark stuff to get there and interestingly spielberg pushed back spielberg made him cut a lot of dark stuff and said we cannot traumatize kids and then lucas and spielberg made made him cut 10 minutes out of Land Before Time, and I think that's what soured. It, not, e- none of, even more, I think, from what I read. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot. The The thing about the 10 minutes, was though, was it was right before release. It was like a couple weeks before they were going to release, mm. and Lucas and Spielberg were just like, nope, we're not going to spend five extra minutes on mom dying and then all this different stuff. So they just, it's just one of the weirdly short animated films out there. It's like 69 minutes long, and it was not designed to be 69 mm-hmm. minutes long. Which is really interesting because everybody thinks of Spielberg as like the premier 
traumatized kids in the 80s filmmaker but he was pretty keen not to do that in his in his animated work at least he wanted there to be a balance and he didn't want to go too far which i suppose just means he's a savvy producer which we all knew yep so are we still what else did what else did bluth do yeah all dogs did he do that he did all dogs go to heaven which is terrible yeah Yeah, I, i think i saw that one in the theaters as a kid and Hated it. I would have been a, an older kid, right? But I just, I'd rarely hated a movie that much. If I remember, I just didn't know what to make of it. It's weird when you it's, go to. I mean, I, I remember seeing stupid. it multiple times, but yeah. at the set because it was just like there. But man, it's so terrible. Yeah, it's just like everything. Yeah, it just made you feel horrible, and it felt so off and wrong. It it is. It's weirdly. It's perverse. It has a hell that feels like hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it has a bizarro crocodile dog like love duet the big lipped alligator it, it well and just the whole story is the dog dies and then he wants to go back to get revenge on the gangster who killed him it's like the, this is not the stuff that kids movies are made of this is not a relatable yeah. well, but then it has a little a cute little girl that he's gonna manipulate and lie to so that he can well live again well we'll talk about don bluth and his fall and and his how much he sucks well can i just say yes so my favorite don bluth movie and i this might have been true in childhood though i i can't swear to it is secret of nim sure never saw it secret of nim is awesome i've been watching clips of it since watching american tale never saw it never saw thumbelina well you shouldn't see thumbelina thumbelina sucks but but secret of nim has the animation is i think it's even better than american tale and same style yeah same style but there's something different there's something different he's doing with the way he uses backgrounds. I don't know the animated animation terms. Well, for one thing, it's much more handmade. Yeah. We have the advent of CGI being assisting a little bit in American, American Tale. Tale and kind of things are moving forward. And American Tale is just more streamlined, a little bit more in the Disney style. Yeah. And it's very consciously trying to make the mice and everybody cuddly and cute. I mean, they they sold a lot of Fievel toys and they intended to sell a lot of Fievel toys. That's part of what Spielberg did at the time. So well, I, I think Secret of Nim was just like, let's make the coolest thing we can make. Well, it, it has like elements of horror, suspense, and action for kids. It has like blood mm-hmm. and a sword fight where the these big rats are like actually drawing blood. And it, as a kid, it was just like, this is, it's just kind of awesome. Right. Because Disney does not give you that. Disney might give you like a three second sword fight between Aladdin and Snake Jafar. Right. But it's not going to go, it's going to like cut it short. But the Don Bluth is going to be like, yeah, this is just a big sword fight and rats are going to die. Well, also, it's weird as a kid to see a sword fight that ends in someone being stabbed with a sword, which may sound counterintuitive, but like Aladdin never is going to stab anybody with a sword. He's going to swing his sword around and it'll be exciting and then something else will happen. That's right. But I remember the first time I saw like an old Three Musketeers movie and D'Artagnan just stabbed somebody and i was like oh i guess that's what you do with swords but it had never occurred to me that a movie could actually just have someone get stabbed with a sword because the sword was just like a thing that you swung around and right did daring do with and then the bad guy would fall into the water or something like that but not in don bluth secret of nim <laughs> not in don bluth land well let's do there, I not think, in the prince's bride either not in the, true yeah well the prince's bride not was the an princess early bride. yes but that sword that feels so 
thoroughly earned by the time it happens that it never bothered me as a kid, even though he kind of has that guy on the ropes when he kills him, but that's okay. Vengeance is cool, if Hollywood has taught us nothing else. Let's talk about Don Bluth. So Don Bluth is a really interesting guy, and I'm not convinced, you guys can help me litigate this, I'm not convinced he's actually a good filmmaker, (laughs) because everything that he did after the two with Spielberg just was awful in a bizarre in a bizarre way. Yeah. But he is kind of the Tesla to Disney's Edison. He's kind of the direction that things could have gone that if we hadn't had somebody else dominating the market. And he's very much the direction that he could that things could have gone because Disney tried to hire him back after Nim and after the Spielberg stuff. It was on the table for him to come back to Disney. He made a choice to to go his own way. And then Disney was like, all right, I guess we have to give all these young guys a chance. And that's when you get the Disney renaissance. And so instead of the Disney renaissance, we could have had a Don Bluth-led Disney animation department. And who knows what that could have looked like. Man. I think it would have been a disaster, probably, based on... How things went. And based... Well, but if, uh, if, he's, so if he's under he was control, at Disney studio control... Was Secret of Nim Disney? Secret no. of Nim's not... I didn't think so. Secret of Nim, he so, like he and his guys produced out of their own pockets. They like did they mortgage their homes or something? Yeah, I'll I'll talk about okay. it. I'll talk about it. This is like DreamWorks. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very similar. Well, and Spielberg kind of runs through all these things because he he founded DreamWorks. I don't know. Don Bluth is a weird guy. There's a lot that we could say. He's born in 1937, so he comes out the same year that Snow White does, and he goes and sees Snow White, and it, it must have been a re-release or something. But it it was what influenced him to draw every day and he says to this day a drawing of mine only has a lifetime span of maybe 24 hours before i have to do another one he just describes himself as addicted to drawing he grew up in el paso and then in utah where he lived on the family's farm he is a member of the church of jesus christ of later of latter day saints he's mormon and a faithful one to hear him tell it his great grandmother was Helaman Pratt, an early leader of the Mormon Church and one of the founders of Prattville, Utah. And also the Pratt's great-grandson is Mitt Romney. So Bluth and Romney are second cousins, and they're both weird Mormons. He actually went to Brigham Young in the early 20th century and then pursued a degree in art and animation. In 1955, he was hired by Disney and worked as an assistant on (coughs) Sleeping Beauty, which came out in 1959 which I think we've reviewed on this podcast and not an earlier iteration of this podcast. And then in 57, so before Sleeping Beauty actually came out, he left Disney because he just thought it was boring, went to Argentina as a missionary, as a Mormon missionary for two and a half years and would draw pictures to share Jesus with people and make connections for people. So interesting guy. But he actually... Got done with Disney, went back to animation, started working for different animation houses doing cheapo stuff, and then was refolded back into Disney. They got him back, and he worked on a bunch of things that our listeners may remember fondly, but that (coughs) I have very little fondness for, kind of the post-Disney. Well, Disney is dead, and we just have to get some stuff out there for the kids, so... The one that everybody loves that I don't is Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, The Rescuers, somewhat beloved, Pete's Dragon. And the thing about all these movies is that they're cheap. Disney just didn't 
Aristocats too. Yeah, Disney didn't have wasn't putting money into it, and so the backgrounds don't move, and the secondary characters. You watch the rescue. They recycle a lot of things they, from, yeah. like a lot of Robin Hood's recycled from Jungle Book. From Jungle Book, and yeah, you can go mm-hmm. and see the comparisons where mm-hmm. it's just the same. It's silly. And so here's a quote from Bluth. I grew up at a time where Walt Disney was the greatest of storytellers. So many of the things he put into the movies were so moral and so so and strong, and they shaped lives. Whereas nowadays, it seems to me like you can't make a movie, like you can make a movie so they can make money. So it's a pretty dark period for Disney. There's a lot of cost cutting. The stories aren't connected to fairy tales. I mean, they didn't do fairy tales from about sleep. Sleeping Beauty didn't make money. And then they were like, okay, I guess we shouldn't do fairy tales, which is the dumbest Wrong idea they answer. ever made. Uh, and then they really don't do anything until Little Mermaid. And so they're doing all these things cute little animal movies and stuff like that but there's a lot of cost cut cutting it's it's they're thinking of it as not for the family but for kids so it's mostly slapstick it's mostly not that sophisticated and then there's just not anything to really stir the imagination and by 1971 the nine old men the legendary nine old men the nine animators who kind of made disney what it was were beginning to retire and Bluth and his friend and future business partner, Gary Goldman, whose name figures in a lot of these stories, he's always been Bluth's partner, they're kind of expected to step into leadership positions as the next generation. But Disney has not, Walt Disney died and he just didn't leave things in good shape. And his, the people that took over after him really didn't get their act together until the 80s and 90s. And so there's no mentorship program. There's no way to actually pass on the secrets of the old men. The old men are getting old. They're literally forgetting how they did things. And so Bluth's expecting to go learn from these legends. And he's finding that, A, we're not doing cool stuff anymore. B, these guys don't even know how they did the cool stuff. There's no sort of systemic pro- programmatic way for this all this lore to be passed on. And so he's just like, this sucks. What am I supposed to do? So he gets 17 other employees and they start working in his garage making their own animated feature just to try and figure out like how did classic Disney do it. And so they make something called Banjo the Woodpile Cat. And Banjo the Woodpile Cat's pretty cool. You can find it on the wonderful YouTube to this day. And that turns into Don Bluth founding his own studios and then making Ben's favorite movie, The Secret of Nim, which came out in 1982. He actually walked off of The Fox and the Hound, which I say good for him, and delayed it by about a year. He screwed over the poor fox <laughs> and the hound. Bluth's just like this. He's a Mormon. He's an idealist. He, start, he, he starts the first profit-sharing company in animation. So he's like, come on, everybody. Come with me. We'll all have a piece of the pie. And of course, Nim makes no money and it goes under and nobody... Because, are you going to say why? <laughs> why? Why? Well, <clears throat> when... One reason, at least, is that it debuted against E.T. Right. And E.T. just crushed the snot out of it, of course. E.T., of course, crushed the snot out of it. (laughs) But it made some money on home video release and cable showings and kind of became a cult classic. But Don Bluth Productions had to close. But Spielberg saw Nim, and Spielberg had the golden touch. And if he liked you, then you were in and you could have money to do things. And so he came to Bluth and said, hey, I really liked Nim. You want to do something together? And Bluth was like, cool, and we'll talk more specifically about American Tale. But that turned into American Tale. That turned into Land Before Time. And then, as I alluded to, he ended his relationship with Spielberg. Spielberg founded Amblimation, which made made a bunch of stuff that people always think is Bluth, but it's not. And it's 
pretty dire. So the best of it is American Tale Five Goes West, but then they made We're Back a dinosaur story, which sucks. Oh, I hated that movie. And Balto, which, uh, which I never saw, which nobody cares about. And and that, those were the three, and then they basically folded. Um, I remember Balto. Yeah, I mean, I didn't care about it though. Yeah, nobody cared about Balto. I think. And so Bluth leaves Dis. Bluth leaves Spielberg. He has a chance to join Disney. He decides not to. Disney, just to put everybody in the timeline, proceeds to crack the code and make great movies. Bringing they return to fairy tales, they return to archetype, but they also figure out how to bring some much needed complexity and nuance to the archetypes. And they crack the code with Robin Williams and the genie. So it's like we can tell these stories that really connect to kids, but then we can have running humorous commentary. For the adults. You get Minkin and... The, yeah, they get Minkin and Ashman to come and they say, let's do Broadway style yeah. big scores. And, and that's a huge thing. And they write these fantastic scores. And, and so Disney just figures it out. So like if Disney had made Beauty and the Beast in the 1940s, then I think it would have just been like, the girl falls in love with the beast, but they made it in 1991. So it's like, the girl falls in love with the beast. It's archetypal. We can all connect to it, but it's a little more complicated and there's some nuance and there's some character development. Now, if Don Bluth in 1991 had been in charge and made Beauty and the Beast, I think it would have been like... The, the Beast is scary, and, oh, yeah. well, which he was, but... <laughs> well, I think it would have been worse than that if you look at his... I think it would have been like, the Beast helps reform French tax laws. And also they fall in love and there's a monster <laughs> or, or something. Like, my point is, his way of trying to get back to the old Disney once he got out from Spielberg, and even under Spielberg to some degree, was always, let's have truly adult material and adult themes and adult concerns and then let's put some kids stuff next to it and so we're gonna have all this stuff about the immigrant experience but then there's this five story that kids can connect to whether they understand what tammany hall is or not it really doesn't matter <laughs> he's kind of like what's the guy richard williams the guy who didn't finish the thief and the cobbler yeah he's kind of like that just a weird guy maybe a genius at animation in his own way not able to tell a story and always putting in adult stuff in the mixture of kid stuff yeah, and it's not even, I mean, a lot of times it will be adult stuff, like, ooh, naughty stuff, but also it's just like... Boring stuff. Boring stuff, yeah. So let me go through his 90s output, all of which was commercially, artistically, financially, in every conceivable way, a failure. I don't know why he, this guy got to keep making movies. It's really weird. All Dog Goes to Heaven. All Dogs Go to Heaven. It's the story of Charlie B. Barkin, a German shepherd that is murdered by his former friend, Carface Carruthers. Charlie withdraws from his place in heaven to return to Earth, where his best friend, Itchy Itchford, voiced by Dom DeLuise, still lives in order to take revenge on Carface. What kid would connect? And then there's a little orphan girl and some stuff for kids to connect to. But this is like, who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> and, and then a Rockadoodle in 1992. <laughs> this film tells the story. These, I like these, are, just, these are just the... the uh, That's terrible. Yeah, like you like to rock a As a kid, yeah. The anthropomorphic rooster named Chanticleer who lives on a farm and crows every morning to raise the sun. However, he leaves the farm to become a singer in the city after being tricked by the Grand Duke of Owls who, whose kind hates sunshine into thinking that a crow does not actually raise the sun. Without Chanticleer, rain continues to... It's like... <laughs> Beauty, love will fall in love with beast. Aladdin will get magic lamp. These archetypal stories you can describe in one sentence. And then Bluth is like, well, there's a guy and he has to do his tax returns, but there's a bad guy that talks. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> Thumbelina, you'd think he could make that. And I did go to see this one in the theaters. I, I been... saw this on video, I think. I remember hating it. And it sucks because Thumbelina is this totally passive, boring character, uh, insipid. And then 
it's five or six different animal kingdoms that want to marry her. And so it's like the politics of the mole prince wants to marry. It's just like, again, what kid cares about any of this? And yeah, it has sword fights and it has a pretty girl and a prince and stuff, but it's just all so weirdly and, done. And does the animation, because I remember All Dogs Go to Heaven, the animation is actually still quite cool. Yeah. But it downgrades, right? Yeah, his, his budgets are falling. And then Troll in Central Park. Well, it's also going to be running parallel to the Disney Renaissance. So Disney's just like upgrading and upgrading and learning how to use CGI mm-hmm. and learning how mm-hmm. to, like you've got the Lion King hitting. Yeah. Like, and they're pouring and more money great big into scenes it. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, the so Lion... Even, even if he could keep at the same level, yeah. he's being left behind. Right. And Pixar's popping... Yeah, Pixar, what's 93, I think, is Toy Story. So it's like all this exciting stuff's happening, and this guy is just stuck in the past. And it'd be one thing if he had a great story sense and wanted to tell slam-bang stories. Well, Pixar would have hired him. Yeah. Or or somebody somebody doing the next cutting-edge thing would have actually pulled him in, or Spielberg would have... Right, continued to work with him. To work with him, but... I think Spielberg liked his animation sense. He's obviously a good animator. Yeah, it's clear. Like, when you look at this, it's like, well... Spielberg wanted to do animated stories, but he needed to link himself to a cool, edgy <coughs> animator who could hit his style. But, mm-hmm. you know, which blew when you have an idiot who wants to fight Steven Spielberg over how to tell a good story, you don't have an animation studio. <laughs> right. And it would be nice if it was the story of a guy who had his own vision and it was so great and he just needed to get out from under the thumb of the evil producers. But And Spielberg came behind and helped him realize it. Right. But. Well, I mean, one thing you learn if you read enough about Hollywood lore is those evil per- cigar-chomping c- producers, often very necessary. Often you need an evil chomp- cigar-chomping producer to tell you to cut two reels, to tell you to take out the stupid part, to... They like, get in that position for a reason. Right, <laughs> exactly. Well, that So back to The Secret of Nim, which was his first, I, my guess, and I haven't seen it for a long time. Maybe it doesn't hold up like I remember, but my guess is that um, it works because it's just taking off of a really well-structured kid's book. Right, a novel that... And so that kind of subbed in for the producer. It's like Blue's not coming up with his own story. He's not adding in stuff about tax returns. He's right. just like, this is weird enough that it already meshes with my dark sensibilities. Yeah, and if he'd kept finding good material, then... You could see him animating like some awesome, lesser-known Oz books. Like, imagine an alternate Don Bluth. That would be fun. Yeah, sure. Or if he just... Or decided... just Grimm. Yeah, sure. Grimm's fairy tales. The, yeah. the guy obviously has talent, but he just doesn't know how to get out of his own way. So Troll in Central Park is the story of a troll who's exiled from the kingdom of trolls by an evil troll queen for growing flowers and lands in Central Park where he befriends two children, blah, blah, blah. There's all oh, this man. troll mythos and the pebble and the penguin. Did either of you guys have the no. misfortune? No. I did. Because <laughs> <laughs> no. these were the kinds of movies that like it's a rainy Saturday afternoon and the kids are driving you nuts and nothing else is playing. You've already seen the Disney movie. Oh, this is animated. Yeah, so, like we got dra- drugged to a number of these what, things. What's what's with all the bad animated penguins movies? Because you got are, ha- are the Happy Feet movies any good? They're supposed to be pretty good actually. Because okay. people do like that. That's George Miller. Okay, movie. I know it is, but okay, I just uh, haven't seen. I don't. I don't know that I've seen them, but I think my kids might like them. Okay, uh, let me give you. So Pebble and the Penguin, and I remember as a kid being like, "What?" <laughs> Based on the true life mating rituals. Of the Abelai penguins in Antarctic, the film focuses on a timid, stuttering penguin named Hubie, voice of Martin Short, every child's favorite actor, 
who tries to impress a beautiful penguin named Marina by giving her a pebble that fell from the sky and keep her from the clutches of an evil penguin named Drake, played by Tim Curry, of course, who wants Marina for himself. And so there's all this stuff about which pebble will get which girl, and it's all really rooted in real mating rituals of penguins. And it's just like, who? This should have died back at in the <laughs> the storyboard phase like who greenlit this it's like what ai art it does where you know it can't draw human hands people make fun of it cuz there are things that it just has no sense of how to do don bluth is that to stories like his storytelling sense is just off it's never ever been good his movies are never like just based in basic human wants and desires that everyone can relate to <clears throat> so by this time don bluth ought to just be poison he he literally literally makes one two three four five box office bombs that no one likes except for ben <laughs> is the one person on in the world that liked rockadoodle <laughs> uh, hey i was a dumb kid i'm allowed to be a dumb kid but my point is, there are there was one dumb kid that liked Rockadoodle. His name was Ben Solzer. There were no dumb kids that liked Thumbelina, Troll in Central Park, or Pebble and the Penguin. I, I was a dumb kid. I didn't like any of those. And, and meanwhile, Disney's just knocking one thing out of the park after another. Pixar's a thing. Bluth. Well, I mean, you have to think. T- you have to think. Disney's knocking things out of the park, and everybody wants in on Disney's success. I think that's it, right? And so, who out there has any experience? Any any proven ability whatsoever to compete. And so people are, I think, studios... It's like people chasing the MCU now. Exactly right. They're just like, we we have have to to roll the dice with somebody and people are are just going to keep rolling the dice with Bluth because he worked at Disney. He's got the pedigree. He's got the past. He's got some real knowledge of how to get things done. Uh And he's got the the critical successes of of a, a secret of NIM an American Tale and Land Before Time, which were huge. Right. He went up against Disney. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And by the way, I should say, I suppose we'll get to this later, but Great Mouse Detective came out against American Tale. And American Tale did just fine. I don't know who won. But hmm. Interesting. in any case, he, he was actually able to take on Disney during the 80s, but Disney was not as powerful. And he was he had Spielberg. Helping I mean, him in retrospect, an American Tale wins. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I think yeah. everyone would agree with that. So he actually does, Fox Animation Studios, Fox wants to, it's exactly what Jake said, Fox wants to get into the game. They want to beat Disney. And so they open Fox Animation Studios in 94, and they hire Bluth, and they explicitly say, we need you to reverse engineer the Disney formula. And he does, and it makes money, and it does well, and it's fairly fondly remembered. Anastasia... 1997 yeah people like that one people like that one i don't think it's anything special but it's also not bad yeah you can go to it i saw it i showed it to my kids i had never seen it before i haven't Uh, seen it it's been in it's been several years and it's got that sort of same almost excessively scary it's got some things in it i don't even remember what they are it's christopher lloyd as rasputin yeah which is a great idea he's like a demon yeah it's very it's like rasputin's pretty demonic yeah and depraved and scary in a way that... It's one of those things where all his power is contained in a magical vial and she smashes it and then he screams and dissolves into a skeleton. It's, it's like that kind of... Yeah, you're helping me remember now. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, you can watch that movie and be like, hey, yeah, this holds together. This is pretty good. Yeah, it's, but then you forget about it and you never go back to it's it. It's not a pimple on Beauty desire. and the Beast or Toy Story or... Right. 
right. any of the iconic 90s movies, but it's it's pleasant. It holds up. Yeah. Decently, if you go back to I think it would. Yeah, but you wouldn't like you, you would never think to go back to right. it. Exactly. I mean, it's fine if somebody's interested. I'd say that's the other Bluth movie to watch, but it's not really even a pimple on American Tale or Land Before Time. Anyway, then Don Bluth gets a big budget and he kills, he, he literally kills Fox <laughs> Animation Studios with a little movie you guys may or may not remember called Titan AE, which came out in 2000. Remember all the trailers. Yeah. Remember thinking, man, that looks so bad. Yeah. It's one of those things where they're like, hey, it's our cool new thing. And, and the audience is just like, nope, not interested. Don't care. You can put Matt Damon in it. You can put Drew Barrymore in it, which they did. And we're just like... And Bluth is just like consistently in the 90s and into the 2000s behind the times like CGI. Disney not only has their renaissance, but then their renaissance ends and they're smart enough to acquire Pixar and move into CGI as 2D animation sadly dies. And meanwhile, Bluth's still like, hey, can I do things that are old and stupid? And the audience is like, no. And then Bluth's like, okay, I'll make a sci-fi epic for teenagers that'll be partially CGI. And teenagers are like, no we're not that dumb we don't want that we can just go see star wars we don't need titan ae but i'm just looking up roger ebert's reviews he gave it three and a half stars yeah roger ebert's which makes me at least interested to watch it marches to the beat of his own drum he does yeah he liked but i'll tell you what he didn't give that many stars to pebble all dogs go to heaven rockadoodle thumbelina troll in central park pebble and the penguin yeah 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 i've actually got a <laughs> quote from i think this is his review of Thumbelina. He said, Bluth originally left Disney because he found the studio's animation efforts moribund. The irony is that, that his own films now more closely resemble the Disney of the 70s than those from the current studios. With The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, Disney has not only reached a new creative level, but is obviously aiming at a true general audience. The stories, music, and action in the new Disney features are entertaining for adults, not just till children. It is difficult to imagine anyone over the age of 12 finding much to enjoy in Thumbelina. So Disney's like, hey, we bought Pixar. We're making our own CGI movies. Bye. And Don Bluth's like, Titan AE. And that finally broke his career. He's never really had another hit. Or he's never had the opportunity to make anything again. He's now in his 80s. He probably won't make anything again. He he just, I saw, just sort of like browsing the internet, just released a memoir. Yes, he released a memoir, which I'll quote from in a minute here, which is kind of obnoxious. I don't know. I don't want to be a Don Bluth hater, but he's very, what's the word for when someone wants to be cute? He's very cutesy. He's very, he wants to tell the story of a magical Utah farm boy that got an opportunity to work with Steven Spielberg and play in the big leagues and make some animated films and all this kind of thing. And his dreams were somewhere out there. Uh, it's that kind of thing Hmm. but so that's the story of don bluth he's also some of our listeners may be familiar with the arcade game dragon's lair from the 1980s he did the animation Mm -hmm. for that kind of a famous thing and he's always trying to kickstart or go fund me or whatever a new dragon's lair movie but he's i think his kickstarter failed (laughs) because sorry Don Bluth. no one cares so here's the story of american tale and i'm going to draw from his memoir so he gets a call from Jerry Goldsmith, famous composer, great composer, did the score for NIM. And Jerry Goldsmith says that his friend, Jerry's friend, was bowled over. Jerry's friend said, I thought nobody did this kind of animation anymore. And so Jerry's friend wants to meet Bluth. And so Bluth's like, cool, who's your friend? And he kind of laughs and says, you know that alien movie that destroyed NIM at the box office? It's the guy that made that. So, so it's Steven Spielberg. 
And so Bluth says Spielberg came to visit his office and it was like getting a visit from the emperor or the pope. Quote, his appointment wasn't for an hour when a jade green Porsche roared into the parking lot and screeched to a halt. A man wearing braggy trousers, a Hawaiian shirt and a beat up baseball cap got out of the car, unquote. So it's kind of fun to remember that Steven Spielberg was, in fact, the nerd king, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs kind of dude of his time. Yeah. He's always been much better at Steven Spielberg is just a master of PR, and he's always wanted to present a naw shucks persona to the public. But he was the aggressive nerd king who could make or break people in the 1980s. Show up in my green Porsche wearing a Hawaiian shirt and right. a ball cap, and I'm going to make your life or break it right. yeah. in this meeting that I'm an hour early for because <laughs> yeah. I am on my time. Right, yes. And you will be too. Yes. <laughs> a Spielberg is never late, nor is he early. Just like John, what's his name, <clears throat> Hammond? In Jurassic Park. Yes, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I think there's a lot of Spielberg and John, John Hammond. Yep. So they show him around the studio. They show him animation cells, which you, you, Steve Spielberg's really excited by. And then finally, Steven says, say, are you interested in doing a movie together? And they're like, cool. And he's like, okay, I'll find the perfect story. I'll get back to you. And so they expect a call in like a week or something. Two years later, Spielberg contacts them. And meanwhile, their studio has gone out of business <laughs> and had to, they've had to relocate <laughs> into a little dump. And they're like, okay, they keep expecting a call from the maestro to save them, but they get it in two years, which is not rude by Hollywood standards, I guess. But in any case, Spielberg calls them and he's got this story he's really excited about. And it's about a Russian mouse family coming from to America and getting separated from their little son. It's about a young mouse named Mousy Mouskowitz who immigrates from Russia after their home is destroyed by cats. And Spielberg's really excited. It'll be a musical, and we'll call it An American Tale, spelled T-A-I-L, not T-A-L-E. And Blue's first thought is, oh, another mouse movie? Because Nim was a mouse movie. Obviously, Disney's famous for mouse movies. And then his second, second thought, and I quote, was, Hella de damn, that is a perfect story. And so, and you can, if Spielberg wants to do I mean, if Spielberg said, we're going to make a movie about my laundry, then you kind of have to say, hell damn, that's a perfect story. So in any case, he decides that it is. And Spielberg is, Spielberg's at an interesting point in his career because he is the king. He is the kingmaker. He's also trying to move into prestige right now. So he's filming. So he's, he's doing the Indiana Jones trilogy. He's in the middle of that in between Doom and Crusade. But he's also doing Empire of the Sun and Color Purple. He really wants to be taken seriously, and he's not going to be taken seriously until Schindler's List in 93. So he's doing Which em- was a genius, bold move. Yep. I tried. Y'all didn't take me seriously. Let me just take a step back and blow your minds. Yes. <laughs> and-, and now you have to take me seriously and everything I do from now on. It doesn't matter. You will take it seriously. Well, the thing to remember, I've said this before on the podcast, but also... I'll make Jurassic Park the same year. So I've still got all the Spielberg magic. In fact, I've got more of it than I've ever had. I'm going to make the biggest blockbuster of all time. I'm going to bring dinosaurs to life. And I'm going to make one of the great art films about the Jewish experience and the the, the Holocaust drama of all Holocaust dramas. And they're both going to come out the same year. I'm going to win all the Academy Awards. I'm going to... Huge mic drop. Yeah, it's just a mic drop. And then he took a few years off and has kind of tried to recover and replicate that ever since. And eventually I think just gave up and moved into making dad movies. But 
for a while there, he would do one for them and it'd be like, The Lost World comes out and Amistad comes out in the same year, Minority Report and whatever, that kind of thing. And it kind of worked, but Lost World and Amistad is no Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, I'll tell you that much. Mm-hmm. So in any case, Spielberg, you can see the sort of competing things within Spielberg in American Tale. It's very much a commercial movie. It's very much designed to sell toys and all that and to have a story that kids will relate to. It's also he's connecting to his Jewishness and his experience and his family's experience and all this kind of stuff. So he's busy filming Empire of the Sun in Japan. They would send him the storyboards, the character designs. He'd mark up everything. He'd say, this is funnier. You can make this stronger. And Bluth on this movie at least worked very well with him, understood that he's a genius and a kingmaker and he has he has what it takes and we're just going to do what he says. And Bluth felt like he had enough freedom to, Bluth still wants to own American Tale, which of course he does. But there's no, like Poltergeist, everybody always says Spielberg just directed it and Toby Hopper really didn't get a chance to do anything. There's nothing like that on American Tale. They had a, a decent working relationship. In 85, Disney released The Black Cauldron, which they'd poured a lot of money, and that was supposed to be Disney's big comeback movie, and that, of course, was a big bounce, really didn't work, but they'd spent almost three times American Tale's budget on that, and then American Tale gets to come out, be awesome, and be better than Black Cauldron, and be better than what it went up, the the three things it went up against, which were... Like I said, a great mouse detective and also two re-releases, Lady and the Tramp and whatever the other one was. The only thing, other thing to mention is that George Lucas was dating Linda Ronstadt at the time, the singer, and so they needed a, they needed a song for her, and that's why we got... And George Lucas was, didn't work on there. the movie. He's just Steven's friend, and so, right. hey, write <laughs> somewhere out there for Linda Ronstadt. And so... The movie came out, it was not a critical favorite. It's interesting to look and remember that the critics didn't like this movie. Siskel and Ebert both gave it thumbs down. Siskel was kind of offended by, Siskel, Siskel was Jewish and he was kind of offended by this movie's attempt to tell such a Jewish story, but also not to ever say that it is, you know, it's, it's like so specifically Jewish, but then it draws back in certain ways from wanting to just be like, hey, we're a Jewish... I mean, it doesn't... You could argue... I don't know. Maybe we could talk about it. Like, Their name is Mouskowitz, for crying out loud. Of course, mm-hmm. it's a Jewish story. <laughs> yeah. They're celebrating Hanukkah. They're celebrating Hanukkah. So I don't know what Siskel had to complain about, but this, Ebert and Siskel are just both confused. What is this? It's so serious, and it's so dark, and it's not really for kids, and it's so Jewish, but also it's not... Richard Siskel of Time said, after a half century's domination by wasps like Mickey and Mighty, the world of animation is happily invaded by a Jewish mouse. Oy, does he have troubles. So even the people that liked it kind of had that, <laughs> that attitude. Also, people complained about the racial stereotyping, the other racial stereotyping. You got the drunk Irish. You got a whole song that's just yeah. the most egregious stereotypes. All the cats are Nazis. Cat, cat, lots are, cat lovers weren't happy with it (laughs) either okay now i remember so its main animation competition was you'd never guess in a million years it's funny that this one was still being re-released maybe maybe that gives it away snow white no it's uh, it is locked in the disney vault and it will never come out ever again song of the south song of the south yeah american tale actually went up against Song of the South, which placed number three that weekend. And then later, Lady and the Tramp opened for Christmas. And so American Tales just running neck and neck with all these 
Disney movies, but everybody's kind of amazed because it beats them. It earned $44.6 million. Lady and the Tramp grossed 30 that year. So Disney still has a lot of muscle. Like they're still almost doing as good as a new. I just pull something out of the vault. And, right. And not uh, even something all that great. Yeah. But uh-huh. sales of five of merchandise flying off the shelves. Sears had one of their most successful campaigns. McDonald's was giving away storybooks. McDonald's did get in trouble because they gave away Christmas stockings with Fievel's face. And several Jewish organizations I had one. questioned the use of a Jewish character on a, a Christmas item. And so Bluth could have done the sequel. He, to, to hear everybody talk about it, there wasn't a huge falling out. They've all always been pretty diplomatic about it. Frank Marshall said, ah, it was his choice not to do American Tale Part 2. We went ahead and did it ourselves. But reading between the lines, I don't think he liked his his working relationship with Spielberg and with Lucas, who was involved on Land Before Time. They cut ten minutes out of it about a week, a couple weeks before its release. They really and they insisted on a bunch of things. Like Bluth just wanted to make it a dinosaur movie where the dinosaurs didn't talk. His inspiration was the awesome dinosaur sequence in Fantasia. But they were like, the dinosaurs have to talk. It has to be cute. It has to be little foot and his pals. We're going to cut out a bunch of sharp tooth stuff. We're going to, which, I mean, the movie's still pretty scary and primal, at least as, as I experienced it as a seven-year-old. I don't know. Yeah. But maybe they made it too cute. I'd have to watch it again. In any case. Again, it's kids separated from their families. Right. Well, traversing and, an apocalyptic hellscape, being chased by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Now, well, you, <laughs> now, now you can go watch Good Dinosaur with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another <laughs> great movie. <laughs> well, in any case, that's the story of American Tale. That's the story of Don Bluth. And Ben, you looked up a little research on yeah. the, like the actual immigrant experience. I did. I did. Yeah, so it, it's the movie takes its cue from the experience of Ashkenazi Jews. That's the bulk of Jewish immigrants to America. So they would have been the ones who settled near the Rhine River around 1000 AD, parts of Germany and France. And as they got pushed out, persecuted, they moved east, east, east until they're in Russia, Ukraine, Poland, or what today is Russia, Ukraine, Poland, that kind of thing. So Hollywood, Broadway, everything that we know is Jewish in America comes from this (laughs) strand of... Yeah, as opposed to like Sephardic Jews who were uh, formed communities in Spain and Portugal and stuff like that. So Ashkenazi Jews are Western Europe and then pushed to Eastern Europe. And then from there, they started to immigrate to the U.S. So, so in, in the movie, you see that it's in Shostka, Russia, if I'm saying that right. That's, that's the village or that's the city that their little place is, mm-hmm. the Moscovitz family. So that was, today that's Ukraine, Shostka, Ukraine. But it was part of the Russian Empire at the time. And it's an area called the Pale of Settlement which I didn't know anything about. And the Pale of Settlement was this big, like, western region of Russia where if you were Jewish, that's where you were going to live by decree of the Tsar. And you had very limited rights as a Jew. And unless you were really rich or you, were, you had connections, you were not getting outside of the Pale of Settlement. And so you lived inside this region and you didn't have very good rights and life was pretty, pretty rough for you. This, this area ceased to exist around the start of World War I. Hmm. Ceased to exist politically, ceased to be enforced as a boundary. But it was like Belarus, Lithuania, Moldova, big parts of Ukraine and Poland. That, so it's, it was a big area, but it wasn't a nice place for them to live just because they were not citizens, as I understand it. 
So um, this movie is set in 1885, and the biggest the biggest pogroms, the biggest like areas to the biggest attempts to kill or drive out Jews happened from 81 to 84. And that's because Tsar Alexander II was assassinated just before that or around that time. And it was blamed on the Jews. People were, it, it wasn't a Jewish conspiracy <laughs> from what I read, but people were happy to blame it on the Jews. And the government was happy to have an excuse to blame the Jews. And so there were these massive Massive attempts to drive out and kill or burn down Jewish settlements and shops and things. And that's, that's what you're seeing at the start of the movie when the Cossacks come through. Cossacks are just like East Slavic Orthodox tribes who lived in Ukraine and Southern Russia. They were just like, you know, natives, citizens, whatever. So they're. So they're is that like the equivalent through. of the clan that's coming through, or is it like the government that's coming through? I don't think it's quite like that. It's more of. The way that I, what I read indicates it's more of a populist thing. Like, however much it may be initiated by the government or whatever, it's like the Jews are not well liked and it's not hard to stir up sentiment against them. So it didn't seem to me like. We'll rally you up, rally you up, and then we'll turn a. Yeah. A, like a, like yeah. Antifa. Right? Yeah. Like, we'll rally you up, then we'll turn a blind eye to. Mm-hmm. Something like that. And... Yeah. Cossacks is not <laughs> like. Cossacks is not like a society. Right. Cossacks is just like a people group. Right. So they come through. This is all, it's kind of like if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. Fiddler on the Roof. That's how I've always at least reinterpreted it. Yeah. Well, Tevi and his family live inside the Pale of Settlement in a different city. And the difference being they're not driven out by a pogrom, but just by an edict of the Tsar at the time. Like, you have to leave. So they leave. So the Mouskovitzes, they leave Russia, which was illegal, involved dangerous border crossings. And they immigrate to the U.S. by way of Hamburg, Germany. And that's a real detail. Hamburg, at the time, had the largest Jewish population of any city in Germany. And that's because the Jewish population there had the right of domicile, which is not citizenship, but it's just, think of it as a collection of civil rights. That's like, oh, you're going to get a trial if something happens to you and you have property, whatever. So they had a right of domicile. And so their community grew, but Germany wasn't like interested in accepting a bunch of new Jewish immigrants. You're not going to settle in Hamburg, but you can find some friendly hands to help you on your way to America. So that's, that's what they do. So there were a ton of Jews from Eastern Europe coming to the U.S. around this time. It's, here's a quote from an article on the Library of Congress website. Quote, in the 1880s, more than 200,000 Eastern European Jews arrived in the U.S. In the next decade, the number was over 300,000. And between 1900 and 1914, start of World War I, it topped one and a half million. So all in all, between 1880 and 1924, when the U.S. Congress cut immigration back severely, it is estimated that as many as three million Eastern European Jews came to the U.S., unquote. So it's nuts. So many people. It's part of a bigger wave of European immigrants, about 27 million of them between 1880 to 1930 is an estimate I read. And, and so these guys are coming in by droves. They don't come through Ellis Island. You notice if you catch it in the movie, you can see, the sh- you can see Castle Garden, which is, it, there's a national, it's a national monument now still. Ellis Island wasn't ready to go yet. Castle Garden is where you came in. When they come in and the guys, the officers are changing their names, that apparently, it was more likely that you yourself were going to change your name. Like mm. you were going to feel a certain, yeah, 
how are we going to fit in and make this work? Let's change our names. Statue of Liberty, that's true. It was being built at the time. It was finished like the next year. And there's, there's other details the movie has, like Tony Taponi at one point is sitting on the sign for Hester Street, which was an important street to immigrant Jews. It had synagogues and a market and stuff, I think. It's now been absorbed into Chinatown. Tammany Hall, <laughs> the wonderful sequence in Tammany mm-hmm. Hall where we learn about political corruption and <laughs> stuff like that. Ghost votes. Ghost votes. Well, <clears throat> Tammany Hall politician, Tammany Hall, it was a political organization that became the political machine of New York City Democrats. It's famous for lots of cases of political corruption. And yeah, they would have used immigrants as a voting base, of course. So that's accurate too. And then immigrants, when they came in, they often would have worked in sweatshops, garment-making sweatshops, like you see Fievel sold into. A lot of the Jews who were coming in, from what I read, were already proficient in the garment industry. They had skills. That wasn't true of all the immigrants. I mean, there's immigrants from a lot of different countries coming in. But in any case, sweatshops were, were a big thing because as the clothing industry expanded and people needed more and cheaper clothes, what these big clothing manufacturers would do is they'd contract. And they say, oh, you want to be a contractor? Okay, we'll pay you such and such a piece. And so a contractor could just be someone like, now I'm a contractor and I bought a sewing machine and we ha- I have a shop in my tiny apartment. Conditions are terrible. I'm going to hire four people. We're going to cram in here, going to make clothes as fast as we can. And that could just be one immigrant doing his best, immigrants trying to take care of each other. It could be someone really nasty, exploiting people who come through. It could be on a larger scale. But in any case, contracting was a big deal. By the 1890s, around half of all the clothing was being produced by contractors. So the business would give these contractors bundles of cloth, pay them to assemble it. And this was super competitive work where you're paid by the piece. So it's not uncommon to be working six days a week, 15 to 18 hours a day, maybe getting paid for four days worth of work, basically, because it's competitive and the price is going down and clothing manufacturers are going to get the most they can for their money. And you're just, it, it's just miserable. So that's a real thing. Kids, yeah, they would have been pulled into this or maybe, I don't know about sold into this. I, I couldn't find a, sources on that, or at least I didn't. But yeah, you can imagine a fievel working in a sweatshop, <laughs> <laughs> making garments through all hours of the night. So yeah, life was not that great <laughs> for immigrants <laughs> coming into the city. Learning more of the backstory of this movie than you ever than you possible. ever thought you would. Well, even, what is it, where they go to make the Mouse of Minsk? That's a real place. The Hall yeah. of Horrors or whatever. Yeah. The All those things are real. This movie has a lot of details. It has a lot of details. It doesn't have like the wealth of fun details that like a Raiders of the Lost Ark or mm-hmm. a Spielberg proper movie has, but it has things in the background that right. period aficionados can enjoy if <laughs> yeah. no one else. <laughs> I never noticed any of this stuff as a kid. It's really interesting. All right, well... Let's talk about the movie. What'd you guys think about American Tale coming back to it as adults? Liked it. Thought it was weird. I mean, as a kid, you don't notice all the connective tissue that's missing from scene to scene or how arbitrary it is to be plunged into this or that kind of horror. It's like transitions just happen with no warning. He falls down a hole and it, now he's in insect world and now he's in the cat's lair. It's and- It's amazing. I don't remember any of that as a kid. It just flows. Everything works emotionally. But as an adult, it's like, how? what is this? <laughs> it's amazing how you don't 
process it that way as a kid. Like no you're, you're not even aware of, oh, there's all this stuff that I don't understand. It's just you're so tethered to Fievel and you're so experiencing his story that it just doesn't, you're just not bothered by, oh, Honest John, the crooked That's just guy. kind of how you experience life. And yeah. So it just yeah. is deeply psychologically real, I think, from the perspective of a child. Yeah. More than a Disney movie. Yeah. I mean, it really does. I mean, you start with, oh, warm, happy Hanukkah, and then the kid's just going to run outside, and now he's being chased by cats, and now mm-hmm. we're going to get on a boat. And... and as a kid, you just don't ask the question of who are the Cossacks. It's just like, well, it's a They're kid's, the bad guys. They're the bad guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't have to. It's evocative mm-hmm. more than logical. It's like a tone poem. I don't mm-hmm. know. I-, I will say, I don't know that this one really works for me as an adult which isn't a knock on it, really. I didn't enjoy it as much going back to it. I mean, I just, uh, it felt a little bit like it's not so much of a powerful kids movie that I'm still really connecting to it all that much on that level. I'm sure I'll enjoy it with my kids and I look forward to watching it with them when they're old enough. But it's not, I'm not connecting it to it like I do to a Beauty and the Beast or a Lion King or something like that. Sure. And then all there's all this adult stuff which is developed enough to be interesting counterpoint to the kid stuff, but it's not actually developed into like, if I want to watch a movie about Tammany Hall grift, I can go watch gangs of New York. Or if I want to see this world, I can watch Godfather two, which is probably my favorite evocation of early Americana type stuff. Like the young Michael, the young Vito stuff is wonderful in that movie. Like there's adult movies I can watch about Gussie Mouseheimer and Honest John and all that kind of stuff. And so kind of felt a little bit like, oh, I don't like the DiGiorno's because it's not really pizza, but it's also not really just like, I prefer a Totino's to a DiGiorno's. It's a very controversial opinion I have because a Totino's isn't even really trying to be a pizza. It's just its own crappy thing. Then I, I also like pizza. I really like pizza. But then DiGiorno is like, caught in that liminal space where it wants to be an adult pizza but it can't quite but it's also not just what i like about a a nasty frozen pizza this movie kind of watching it without kids as a late in his 30s gentleman with his wife is just like i don't know that there's a lot for me here i mean i hope people don't hear that as like a nasty criticism or anything i'm just observing my experience I, i think i felt that way like i was kind of admiring it more than in certain respects, more than enjoying it. Like it couldn't. There are only two ways to watch it as an adult. And that's to reconnect with that feeling in your Mm -hmm. childhood or to watch it as a parent, as a father who could imagine himself in the same shoes as the dad Mm -hmm. and experience the reverse side of that (laughs) horror of having lost your child or being separated from him. Yeah. And that's it. And the movie doesn't really give you any middle ground. It's not going to be, for anybody else, it's not going to resonate for anybody else. And so, yeah, I mean, all that other stuff. Yeah, if you came to this existential angst movie about separation from parents thinking you were going to get a great window into the immigrant experience, then mm. yeah, it's bankrupt and stupid and you right. should watch Godfather Part Two or something like that. But I don't know why you would come to the movie wanting that. So. I wouldn't and I didn't. But my point is that as an adult, the movie does spend an awful lot of time on the immigrant experience without giving you a full meal of immigrant experience. And so it's like, sure. I I could argue that my enjoyment would be greater if it just 
if it was one or the other, if it was just the primal fairy tale or, or if it was an actual story for the whole family to have enough to chew on. But it's not. And I don't think Disney hadn't really cracked that. I think Beauty and the Beast is the movie that really cracked that. We can make a 90-minute movie. It can have enough psychological complexity for adults to enjoy the relationship between the characters. And it can have slapstick. And it can have action. And it can have songs. Mm-hmm. Well, part of the alchemy with with Beauty and the Beast is it's a romance. Yes, exactly. Right? So you can connect to that whether you have kids or not. Right. You have more trouble reconnecting to The Lion King. Right. Either you experienced something similar as a kid that you're reconnecting with when you rewatch The Lion King. Yes. Or you experience it sort of like a dad, even although the dad side of that story is pretty much gone, dad dies. So. Right. But it's a bar so as- you, you connect with your kid, you watch your kids connect with it and walk through that. Like that's a, you experience it through the eyes of your kids. Like right. that's another way to do it. And so you sit down to watch an American tale with all your kids there's your own experience as a kid. There's watching it through the eyes of your kids and watching sort of like feeling bad for them as they walk through Fievel's existential angst mm-hmm. for 70 minutes mm-hmm. of movie and wanting to reassure them that you're there and that you would come find them. And then there's that third dimension of what it would be like for you as a dad to be separated from your kids, mm-hmm. to have given up hope to have been convinced your son was dead and gone and then to have that help restored, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and the those scenes still work just fine. I mean, I the re, the the big they find each other scene, obviously. Mm-hmm. You'd have to be a pretty heartless person for that not to play. I mean, Steven Spielberg knows how to extract tears about as well as anybody. And this movie has it. Yeah, I think. I just didn't care about Tony Topoli or Bridget or I don't know. Warranty Cat's kind of a lame villain, I would say, as from an adult perspective. Especially if you compare him to the other villain of of the year of of '86. The other mouse-related villain was Radigan. Radigan, who's a fantastic villain, and they're kind of both the both these grandiose buffoons. But Radigan has a completely psychotic side that comes out at the end that makes him pretty scary when he's tearing up the through the gears to try and grab them and they have a big fight on the clock and everything that's awesome whereas i mean i guess the i guess maybe i'm just criticizing the movie they didn't make instead of criticizing the one they did make because warranty rat the whole point is he's just a lame grifter he's not really all that scary of a bad guy (laughs) i guess yeah i think the bad guy in american tale is existential angst right. or it's like the fear of separation and law lo- and being lost forever right yeah no I, I like it i mean i think i like nathan i'll enjoy it more when i can watch it with kids yeah and probably that will help me connect to the dad side of it better too but watching it from the angle of what's the like having written scripts now for our vill and stuff mm. what's the connective tissue between scenes what's the just enough context that this will make some kind of sense to mm. an adult i was like oh i just didn't realize it was so I don't know what I want to call it, minimalist or something. Like, it's like a deliberate style, some of which I attribute to carelessness and some of which I think is a deliberate decision to do a thing. Well, um, the argument for it is that as a kid, it does not matter. You, it does you, not you matter. Do not, 
A, the movie feels twice as long when you're a kid. Yeah. Yeah. B. Oh, man. Yeah. You just don't care. Like, oh, he fell in a hole and now he's on, it, a, on it another all makes adventure. Sense. It all makes perfect sense. It all, yeah. It makes sense on a, in, you're it. He doesn't actually it. fall into the hole. He goes down it because he hears the violin music. Yeah. That's right. That's, that's right. right. Yep. And so it's actually part of a sequence of Fievel is looking for his dad and he keeps getting these false leads that he's trying to follow up mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And so we have, I think, three of them. Right. Because rules the, of three, and that's the third one. The phonograph, the, what's the? So you see the fan, he, he's wandering, he sees the families through the windows. You've got the phonograph. He runs into Tony, and then he's got the whole scene with, with Bridget where he's like, wait till I tell Papa. And so I guess it's not really a rule of three in that sense. It's sort of like that that Tony and Bridget stuff is mm. in the middle and you've got a mirror scene on either side for it's first it's mm-hmm. the gramophone mm-hmm. and people and then it's the violin playing of warranty rat. Right. Well it actually is a rule of three. The third one is he reconnects with his family. Right. The third time's the charm. The, the, the second time is the scary <clears throat> descent into the dark you know, it's the Campbellian belly of the beast. And then the the last time is the return of the Jedi. He mm-hmm. gets everything he ever wanted. I think it's a good movie. I, to, just to be very clear, everything, nothing that I said was a criticism as far as I understand it. It's just an observation of, ah, it's interesting to go back to a movie when you're an adult and see what it did and didn't do. And I feel mm-hmm. like I'm making a criticism, but I don't know quite how to put it. It's more just that it's, it's weird. The yeah. style is weird. And maybe that doesn't turn out to be a criticism. Well, it does if but, you look at Don Bluth's career, because you're like, there's a lot of things that are in embryonic form here that will flower into crap <laughs> later on. Yeah, it got saved by having some pixie dust or That's some, right. Some, right. some magic about it that just sort of, this works for reasons we don't maybe necessarily understand. Right. Maybe that's the Spielberg cut and guiding hand of, he's just everything he touches. He's got Midas touch. Hmm. I think Spielberg has the good sense to say there has to be a story. It has to be a story that everybody can relate to no matter how old or how young. And the, that has to drive everything forward. And none of Blue's 90s movies have that. I mean, they're always just about weird stuff. He's a very self-indulgent kind of filmmaker. Yeah. You can feel that stuff attempting to get out here. <laughs> yeah. Just all the time. Like, ah, I just want to show you this. I'm going to animate a weird love moment between well, yeah, Bridget and Tony. Uh, like, like, what's uh, going on here? I think it's funny that like he finds the, the the Irish stereotype of the drunken politician funny. And it's like, do kids relate to that? I don't know that he cares. He just, Honest John's a stereotype from 50 years ago at his time. Sure, I that, think that's fine. That he yeah. likes. You can do that if you want. <laughs> but then you still get the kid's perspective of, well, when he goes to Fievel, it's like he like burps and mm-hmm. uh-huh. it's like Fievel's perspective on Honest John is he's like kind of weird and scary and stinky. and right. Yeah, Honest John might not. Gussie Mouseheimer is actually maybe more of an example of this is the the German society aristocrat lady from the New York Mouseheimers, that whole thing, like from Age of Innocence or something like that. It's like, what kid even knows what this is? But who cares? And I think it's fair to, you can do this kind of story. I mean, you can have a, a central narrative that draws kids along and then you're just doing your own thing in the corners that's actually not an illegitimate way to work it's just that in the 90s bluth forgot to have that central story that actually pulled you through Mm. i'm sure we could think of some good examples of stories that work on more than one level disney did it with their comedy where it's just like 
Robin Williams is doing Rodney Dangerfield impressions. Kids might think that's funny because he's doing a funny voice, but they don't know who Rodney Dangerfield is. Right. They don't know who Peter Laurie is. Or like, Groucho Marx. Or, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Robin Williams is like doing old, <laughs> old stuff and it's fine. And same thing for, that's the real formula that Disney cracked. But. And Pixar improved on. And Pixar improved on. Yeah. I mean, my favorite movies are the ones that are integrated where it's like everything's for everybody. The songs are so good that yeah. kids love them. Adults love them. The comedy is so good that it doesn't matter. That's well, just a good movie. That's the best children's film. I mean, that's, that's why The Incredibles or something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Where Pixar just lands it. It's like, well, I don't watch this movie and think uh, I'm glad that they made this kid's movie fun. I think this is a good this movie. It's a good movie. This is just. Right. Good movie. Yeah. I enjoy the movie. Yeah. Well, there's I also would watch this movie. Yeah. The Incredibles is just a good movie. There's also the thing where you take something that's esoteric that you're interested in that no one cares about and you just do it so well that you force everybody to care about it for at least the duration of the movie. And that would my example of that is Ratatouille. It is actually about a weird like cooking and like it's all the stuff that Brad Bird's interested in, I guess. But he just makes such a quality movie that we're all really invested in whether this weird French dish is going to pay off for the French food critic, which you could make the same kind of sneering argument about like, who cares? Who cares? Why would anyone care? He's pulling on the guy's hair to make him make food. Like none of this movie should work, but, and I don't know why it works, but it just works because Brad Bird's really, 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 really good at what he does. And Brad Bird, has had a couple strikeouts where he's interested in saying something about the world or doing something and he can't bring people along. Tomorrowland was like that. Still want to see it just because they have enough respect for him. Yeah, same. But I haven't watched it. Tomorrowland is a lot of fun in a lot of ways and it's also super perverse. And yeah, and it, it fails. It fails to connect its message. But it's really interesting. Yeah. It's got a lot of great sequences. Well, maybe we'll do it one day. Maybe we'll do the whole bird oeuvre. Oh, well, let's talk about through this movie real quick. So you got, you meet the Mouskowitzes. How would you guys rate this as an introduction to the Mouskowitz? You like this early Mouskowitz stuff? No, you mentioned Great Mouse Detective. It's 100% parallel. Yeah. Right. We zoom in on 221B Baker Street, and then we, and we see Sherlock's silhouette, and then we pan down. Yep. And we zoom in on the Moskowitz home, and then we pan down to the Moskowitz. Which, by the way, Spielberg wanted to just do an all-animal world like Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood or something like that. It was Don Bluth, who had worked on The Rescuers, who said, let's do the little animal story in parallel to human stories, and insisted on that and got it through, for better or worse. I don't... I think the movie's probably better for it, but... Went out the window in two. That kind of did. I mean, I guess not completely because... I guess the train. Yeah, the train. Well, and John Cleese's punishment is oh, that yeah, he, yeah, gets yeah. he gets grabbed by an annoying pulled cat into the, yeah. lady. Yeah. That whole thing. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I re- well, I do know why I remember it because I watched that thing Five four billion times. times. Yeah. He says, revenge. And then she says, oh, pussy. <laughs> And then he's sitting there with a sardonic look on his face while she puts like a baby bonnet on him. It's quite funny. So they introduce the Mouskowitzes and yeah, you're right. It is, it does run in parallel. I will say this is, I don't know if we had like maybe a VHS of this movie that 
missed this part or something like this, but I never remember all the stuff leading up to the Cossack attack. And it's striking to me how much how Disney even perfected that. Disney figured out how to introduce characters in a really dynamic way. Strong opening scene. Made the story. You think of Beauty and the Beast as like, Belle comes bursting out of that house and suddenly there's there's a great song and she's already in conflict with the town. We're already setting up. It's like the story train has already left the station. Same thing for Aladdin. He's like, we're meeting him, but it's also an action scene. He's one jump ahead of the breadline. Right. But then Lion King is its own sort of like... We're doing something completely epic and different. Right. We're going to slow down to walk through this world and have dad Mm -hmm. explain it to us and stuff. But first, we're going to have a great big song. Right. Which my two-year-old loves, by the way. She can watch Circle of Life and really respond to it. Not the whole movie, but Circle of Life she loves. Although she gets really scared. (laughs) Rafiki grabs the baby and takes, takes the baby, as she calls him, up and holds him over the cliff or whatever and she freaks out i think she thinks he's gonna drop him that's all i can understand but she does not like the iconic the shot presentation of simba yeah she she likes when simba shows up like he, baby kitty baby kitty it's a baby kitty and he's shaking the thing and he's she's really excited and then rafiki holds simba up and she does not like that so <laughs> don't hold babies over cliffs i guess is the lesson so it is weird to me how static like He's like, okay, there's the Maskowitzes. They're happy. He's got a hat. Like Disney in its prime, Renaissance Disney. I don't know how they would have done it, but they would have figured out, this is Fievel. He's a character. He's going places. He's interesting. Here's the thing that makes, that pits him against the rest of the world. So, so, it, so back to, so from a kid perspective, what I remember is that it just makes you feel warm and safe yeah. right away. And yeah. that, that I always Yeah, worked. maybe maybe the movie works better for it being sort of passive and still. It's and, just like, oh. It's warm and safe, and it's Christmas. It's Hanukkah, but it's Christmas. Uh-huh. And he gets the hat. The totem for the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's going to keep coming up. It's going to be the thing he uses to get himself in trouble. It's going to be the thing he's that gets him in trouble multiple times. And then it's finally going to fit at the end. Right. He's become a mouse. Yeah, so we did. So at least that part of it works. And yeah. The, it, establishing the cats are bad. And well, again, please don't cast me, not that either of you are, but listener, please don't cast me as the anti. <laughs> so what happened is, I'm leaving it in. Jake just caused a Rube Goldberg. He knocked over a pole, which knocked over a lamp, which killed the cat that Mouse brought, or whatever that fairy tale, or that poem is that I'm not remembering. So you got the federal thing. And then you got the, oh yeah, I'm not a jerk that hates this movie. I like this movie a lot. And I like your childhood and I'm a fan of your childhood and I'm a fan of the movie. I'm just making observations about my reaction to it this time. So then you have the Cossack attack. Now, a lot of critics did criticize this because it comes out of nowhere. It teaches kids, not that there was a complex Jewish-Russian situation, but that bad guys will come and burn your house down for some reason and cats will try and eat you. And they just thought, it's too scary. It's too existentially nasty. It's too, it's not the same thing as Ariel evading a shark to try and get a trinket or just the fun opening sequence. It sets a dark tone for this movie. Do you guys agree with that criticism or disagree with it? I definitely, as a kid, had no idea why that happened, except we're not supposed to say cat very loud because then you can't say it. It's forbidden. The cats will come if you say cat. Right. But 
I just took it as a fact of life that some people had their houses burned down and had to leave. Right. I don't know. I just absorbed it into like, I guess this is part of the world. I think I sort of did process it on the level of obviously Aladdin's got to have an early adventure. And like the story sense of it was so ingrained in my head that it's just like, well, of course, there's going to be an action scene to get the movie going. Mm -hmm. And of course, cats are after mice. We all understand that from Tom and Jerry on. So I don't know that I even really noticed or cared that there were people burning down houses. It was just, it's the opening action scene. It's my plucky mouse boy. and He's adventurous. He's going to go out and bang his pot. and He'll jump up and the two cats will smash, smash into each and other. and He'll get into the kettle and be under the lid of the kettle and it was weird i guess it's vodka or something does he come out kind of tipsy yeah oh yeah that's right i don't know that i quite ever picked up on before i didn't even realize that this time i was just like i thought maybe he was punch drunk because he was in shock or something (laughs) 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 that makes more sense All right, so we leave, we go to Hamburg. Fievel's a little kid, too. That's the other thing that I don't think ever stood out to me as a kid watching this movie. Mm -hmm. Going back to it as an adult, I was expecting him to read as like a plucky 12-year-old, but he's like a little little guy, six or seven or eight, or I don't know what he is exactly, but... He's a little guy. Like, he doesn't understand the And the voice actor does it such a... In terms of voice acting selling, like, little, little kid, Mm -hmm. I don't know that... You can think of, I, I can't think of anything better right. at selling that. Yeah. No, it's good. But yeah, he's the little guy. Yeah. Yeah. I think of him as five, six. Yeah, it's which is interesting. I, I think it actually works well. I always hate when the twelve year old coded kid is like, I'm gonna go experience you know, I'm gonna go put myself in danger. I'm always like, ah, this dumb, rebellious kid. They deserve to be eaten. But Fivel doesn't read that way. He just reads as like a a dumb little kid that wanders onto the top of the ship and he wants to see fish. He wants to see fish. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about the sense of immediacy of danger. That's also different than Disney. Like Mm -hmm. Disney feels like even just a split second, it's going to give you to, to process danger is coming. Whereas all the scenes in this movie, I mean, I know he's giving you context, like we're in a storm, things could go bad, but something about the way peril happens. It's just like instantaneous. Just like suddenly you're in peril world. Yeah. Everything's wrong. A critic that I read from the time said everything moves fast. It moves so fast you can hardly keep up with it, which isn't how it strikes our eyes now. But I think in Disney, like when the shark attacks Ariel, it's like, here comes the shark. He's going to rear back. He's going to come forward. He's going to smash into something. It's like beat, setup, payoff, beat. But this is just like, cat, 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 cat. It's coming, 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 coming. It is just like you're in... Don Bluth's id or a child's id. Right. And I think Don Bluth does <laughs> yeah. action that way. Yeah, it feels like your nightmares as a kid or something yeah. like that. And that's it's kind I of think, amazing. Yeah. And I think that's part of, we're about to talk about the storm monster, mm-hmm. but yeah. Like, yeah. Well, we will. I guess we should talk quickly about the horrible ethnic stereotyping of that song makes me laugh no cats in america every time i love it i i cannot believe like i just it's just hilarious like uh, when well I when was i was a lot i lost my true well, love that's the one that always sticks with me. i love that that irish mouse yeah, yeah, that irish <laughs> i like the italian oh, yeah. caught a spice surprise 
But then he was a tabby. <laughs> <laughs> so, We're the taste for, for my, my mama. brother Tony. For my brother Tony. <laughs> mama me. Oh, mama me. Yeah, but it's just like Papa Mouse is going to stand up and be like, well, you know, when I was a kid, a cat ate my whole family and I passed out and I woke up an orphan. Yeah, we got like a Russian fairy tale. And then <laughs> but like there a... are no cats in America. <laughs> and then, yeah, you've got... An Italian kind of gangster drama, of course. <laughs> Don Tablioni. Don Tablioni. <laughs> he was a tabby with the taste for my brother Tony. <laughs> and my... We found her rosary on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. You see the rosary just get spit out from the... That was sad, but sadder still <laughs> and then especially it was funny just coming off of quiet man and thinking about irish culture and yeah. stuff <laughs> in a flash of, of teeth, teeth and fur, fur her tail was all he left of her neath the heather <laughs> is where it's turler lies <laughs> wow it's so bad it's so uh, bad. I but <laughs> I don't have a problem with it in case anyone took my silliness at the beginning i, I think it's pretty funny and I think they know what they're doing. I mean, they're. It's pretty amazing. Like, actually, you could not do this now. I, I mean, it yeah, is, I don't. I it don't, is inappropriate by today's standards of ethnic stereotyping. But they successfully communicate. The cats are a problem everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everybody is tr- on this boat. Everybody's trying to. Everybody's represented here, and everybody's trying to get to the some kind of land of promise where they've all bought into a hopeful fairy tale that there are no cats. And that's awesome, dramatic irony and foreshadowing because even the littlest kid understands, oh man, of course there's going to be cats in America. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that whole song just sets it up so well just by saying, just by having them so be so cheesy about the fact that there are no cats in America. And then you get, and so it also then plays into the dad son thing that happens where, okay, he's going to get there. He's always sort of teetering on the edge of despair, but with this hopeful childlike faith and optimism. He's going to get thrown in the swept shop. He's going to remember the story of that we alluded to in the opening scene about Rapunzel. Mm-hmm. And so dad saves him there and he gets out of the sweatshop and then he's going to prance around. There are no cats in America. Cats, everybody knows. He's like leaning on dad's fairy tale. Again. Mm-hmm. And then, oh man, I'm going to have to tell my dad, but then he turns around and he still has the mouse of Minsk. So we've got yep. three little fairy tales that dad said, two two truths and a lie. And like just sort of plays with that. Yeah, it's a well-constructed movie. Dances in, in and out mm-hmm. of that sort of, my dad's my hero. He tells me the story. I believe the story. And it gets me out of the jam. And oh, but this one was like wrong and almost got me eaten. Mm-hmm. And this one was right and saved the whole day. And it's a nice combo of I need to keep believing in this stuff in order to survive, but also I'm going to have a more mature understanding of the world by the time I put that hat on at the end of the movie. Yeah. I'm going to come of age. So let's talk about the scary wave monsters, which I never registered or completely forgot about. Mm, that likewise. is a crazy part of the movie. And the only reason I said earlier that maybe I didn't like it, I, I like it, it's cool, but it kind of violates the contract with the audience it's like purely from the id in a magical realism kind of way that the rest of the movie doesn't actually have nathan the movie's all about talking mice i know but it establishes rules for its talking mice and those rules do not involve wave Uh, monsters from the id primal forces of 
nature taking on personality, right? Like conspiring against you. I guess the Statue of Liberty <clears throat> does wink at the end. But, yeah, but yeah. you can do that at the end, at the very for the last shot of your movie in a way that you can't just have. I, I guess it works. I mean, it's what it's just the way Five sees the world. I think that's the way. It, I mean, if you were between the ages of three and seven, right? It would feel like that storm just collapsed on your ship, and it would feel like something was out to get you. Right. Mm-hmm. The waves are out to get you. Is it, I think that's what it would feel like. I think that's what it feel like now. If you were in that, if you've ever seen any like actual footage of some of these storms, like tsunami waves and, and stuff, yeah, in, in the great big like ocean liners being tossed around mm-hmm. on these sea storms, like it's pretty terrifying but it is one of the one of those natural phenomenons where you actually have a minute to see it coming yeah before it hits you well i don't know i I think you're right it does feel in some way out of place but it also i I know exactly what he's doing don bluth came of age with snow white as the thing and there's the scene where she's running through the woods and all the trees become monsters and stuff and then she collapses sobbing and it turns out it was all just the little animals Animals in that case. But there's that really scary scene where she's scared. And so Hmm. nature becomes this personified menace. And I don't know Snow White doesn't feel like it's violating any contract because it is such a primal fairy tale told so simply and directly. Yeah, no, I I think I, I think I agree with you. There's something that it's like, eh, also there's demons. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of demons, I'll tell you who's the opposite of demonic is Henri the Pigeon. The Pigeon, <laughs> played by Christopher Plummer, Captain Von Trapp himself. Oh, what a character. Fievel's gonna never say never. Never say never again. And that was one of the places where I, I will admit my adult mind and my kid mind are now a little at war with each other. Because I'm like, as a kid, I'm like, this is the part in the movie where we need a little hope. So here's the character that yeah. brings it. Here's Hakuna Matata or Be Our Guest or whatever. It's, it's the happy part after things have been scary. But as an adult, I'm like, what? He's, he's like the symbol for America or something? Mm-hmm. Like He's literally building the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, it blurs the line between fantasy and reality and, well, and symbolism like, and Is he character. metaphorically building it or is right. he <laughs> saying he actually builds it? Like, who is this guy and what is, I guess he just represents the spirit of America. But also this movie, it wants to say America's great, but why? I, I guess America's great because you can all band together and fight the cats in America. But that's the only thing that makes America great, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, as far as what we see of it, they're going to be living in a tenement house instead of their cute little cottage feeling house. I don't know. Like, they don't go to any great lengths to show America is. Anyway, Henri the Pigeon, the great Christopher Plummer, singing a very catchy song. With, with lots a- of parts that are indiscernible because we got that little bird chorus. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't hear it. I still to this day have no idea what those with the bird chorus with the pigeon lady chorus. It's like the way actually... it's mixed or Yeah, I don't know if it's how they mixed it or if it's just what recording technology was, but I find that's often the case in old animated movies or even just old musicals in general. I feel like somewhere in the nineties, like Beauty and the Beast, we finally have that opening number where the all the crowd and 
three little girls that are in love with Gaston, like they're all doing their parts and you can all understand everything. But a lot of those old, like you think about the Snow White singing voice. Is, uh, anyway, yeah, it's kind of muddled and muffled, but it uplifts Five's spirits and tells him to just keep trying, just like America keeps trying. Yeah, and then it gets weird because from the perspective of an adult, like here's a guy who's like going to rescue the kid and help him find his family, but now suddenly, oh, no, just take him and drop him off at immigration. Yeah, Henry the Pigeon kind of sucks. Like, yeah, like wh- why did he do that? Yeah, go with him to immigration and stay with him and hang with him and see if you can help him find his family. And if not, bring him back here and we'll try again tomorrow or something, right? Yeah. Instead, she just like drops him off on a hat and he falls into a hole and she flies away. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, and also, as far as all the coding of everything goes, if my kid gets swept over a boat and ends up in America, I don't want the first person that he meets to be some fruity French guy. <laughs> not really. Not <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's got a harem. He's got a harem. Yes, it's true. (laughs) He's a French guy that's interested in ladies, which famously they are. So I guess my kid is safe. But still, I I don't know. Maybe a plucky Irish guy or... Yeah. I'd be happy for my kid to fall in with Tony Tipoli if he couldn't do any better. But you need the iconography of the Statue of Liberty and... The French. It's French and... Yeah. Yeah. I I think this might have been the scene that most pulled me out of the movie. Like as an adult. Yeah. I was just like, this is so arbitrary. It's just not even trying to give me anything that makes plot sense of this stuff. No, but there again, like I said, it it does make emotional sense. Like it is the part of the movie where that's supposed to happen. It's super sad. He's been separated from his family. We've got dad tied up in ship rigging. Right. Screaming out for Fievel. Fievel! And... Bible gasping in the waves and waking up in a bottle. Yep. Traumatic. Well, now we're going to, speaking of traumatic, it's traumatic for us as an audience to meet such a dire villain as Warren T. Rat, who misquotes Shakespeare. Another thing kids will really be tuned into, but. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm really, I'm not complaining, folks. I'm really not. It's just funny to observe all these things. I don't know. Anybody, was I too mean to warranty Rat earlier? You guys, uh, he's just what he is. I mean, he's just a grifter. A silly kinda. grifter. Yeah. 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 And he's got little cockroach. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need a Radigan level psychopath, I guess. But I think a good villain goes a long way and. Warranty Rat isn't a good, as good a villain even. Like John Cleese actually is a similar kind of buffoonish bad guy, and but I think he's a better buffoonish bad guy. He just has a little bit more menace to him. And, For sure. In the sequel. And you got that spider. I don't know. I, if you put a villain in this movie that... It might just tip it over into darkness. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's sort of the same thing with Beauty and the Beast, actually. If Gaston looms too large over Beauty and the Beast, then you lose... It changes the balance of where the drama actually is. Gaston's not the drama of Beauty and the Beast. Right. And Warranty Rat's not he's a plot element. Right. He's not the he's not the drama of this movie. Oh yeah, that's a good argument. I buy that. I think you're right. Nobody's saying, well, if Beauty and the Beast only had an actual good villain, it would be a better movie. Right. I mean Gaston is a good villain, but he's just not a Jafar style villain. He's a Well, that's what I meant. Yeah. He's a buffoon that whose buffoonishness becomes dangerous by the end of the 
Yeah, like, I would say and he works on the level of contrast and yeah, yeah. I mean, for my money, Jafar Gaston always felt darker than Jafar, just because he's like, eh, this, this is, is what a bitter guy can become. This is real human evil, as yeah, opposed right. to just just like the devil, kinda, right? I'm yeah. the devil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, Jafar gets flattened by a door. <laughs> Him and Iago. <laughs> I forgot. That an elephant kicks open. <laughs> Not really something that a great villain wants to put up with. All right. So, okay, that's fair. Now we're going to meet a real zero of a character. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Tony Tapoli. He's in love Tiponi. with Tapony, whatever. He's in love with Bridget. Yeah, I mean, again, as a kid, he's a zero of a character. I was really surprised watching it as an adult. Like they give him nothing to do. They give him no. They give you no. They give you nothing. I think but, even as a kid, I was kind of like, what? Why, as, why a, as a kid, I just like the idea that Bible had a he's friend, like a big brother. That's yeah. right. As a kid, yeah. I just it, that's all he read. The idea says, oh. that for a little bit of this movie, Fievel's not a hundred percent on his own. Yeah. He's got a big brother who is going to try to look after him and take him under his wing, even though he. Doesn't, you know, he's going to be distracted by the girl mm-hmm. like a big brother would. Right. I like him being distracted by Bridget, actually. I thought <laughs> that was kind of cute <laughs> as it was intended to be. <laughs> I, I wasn't like invested in their romance or anything, but. It doesn't, there's nothing much to be invested in. He's on the level of big brother. He walks brother. by a window and he's smitten and doesn't hear a word she says and then kisses her. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like anyone who went into animation partially went into animation because they liked Tex Avery's wolf going gaga for the beautiful woman. Like <laughs> right. you see that basic setup replicate, you know, like Jim Carrey's the mask It's just like a certain generation of dirty old men loved that particular bit of animation. So, so much. And it's just like, that's the way people love an excuse to do that style. Not that Tony goes that far, but People love the kind of, I'm in love, and I'm just... (laughs) Yeah. I think the next major thing to talk about is somewhere out there, which, what do you guys think? Is is this like a a great banger of a ballad or just an annoying thing to put up with, or... I I loved it as a kid, and I I appreciated it. Yeah. It's got some... It really nails down the tear your heart out vibe of it all. Like, it just... It's just doubling down on all of it. And so it is the kind of thing that you're either going to, I mean, you may hate it because you may hate the sentimentality of it in the whole movie or resent the degree to which it's just going to rub your nose in the existential angst of the kid, but Uh kind of seals the deal Mm -hmm. in, in for it to be his sister that he's doing the, doing a duet with like that. I don't know. It's, I think it's brilliant. I, I think it is. I mean, I think it gives girls a rooting interest for one thing. I mean, and she's it's like, the one who's like, she's the like, one that believes in him mm-hmm. and is always hopeful. And, and it's a very just sister. Go, kind go of play thing. your violin. Maybe he's out there. We mm-hmm. don't know. They changed my name to Tilly. Maybe they changed his name to Philly. She's going to get these little moments mm-hmm. at every little stop where we see her. That is just like, Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. what 10-year-old girl wouldn't love to, just those, I mean, it's like five minutes she's of screen get, time, but. It, 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 and then she has a better singing voice than him, and then she's going to get featured in the sequel. Yeah, and all everybody's going to throw tomato, tomatoes at her, and Spielberg is going to kind of take a dump on the song. That's one of the kind of annoying things about the sequel is they're like, sorry, yeah, we know somewhere out there was lame, but I don't think they had to do that. I think it's just fine. I'd say, let me just just do the calculations here. I'd say it's in the middle. If you wanted to put it against all the great Disney ballads that were about to happen, 
your Can You Feel the Love and Whole New World and Beauty and the Beast and Part of Your World, I'd say it's not the worst. I'd say it's not the best. For my money, Part of Your World is the best Disney ballad, the best animated ballad ever. And then probably Beauty and the Beast and Whole New World would both beat it. But then then you'd have somewhere out there. And then like, Can You Feel the Love Tonight would be way down there. And let it go would be way down there. And well, as a moment of setting emotional stakes, I as I don't know that there's one that I as a kid I cared about more than somewhere out there. And as a moment of like a dramatic juxtaposition, I just think it, cin- cinematically, it mm-hmm. might be my favorite of all those, at least from a kid's well, perspective. I think cinematically it might be the most potent. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason why you don't want to put it up there is because it's a little too potent. You don't want to like if you're a kid and you don't want that song to ever come on the radio because it's going to put you there and uh-huh. make you cry. You yeah, know? yeah. It's yeah. going to bring all, it's going to carry with it all the weight of the whole movie mm-hmm. wherever it goes. And so it, like it, it's hard for it to live outside of the film right? in a way that something like part of your world or a, a whole new world or whatever, mm-hmm. it, it can live outside of the, of the movie and have some call your mind to some fun parts of the movie or whatever, but it's not going to like crush you or devastate you or punch you in the gut. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I would say objectively, like construction wise, part of your world is a better song, but I never cared about Ariel or her emotions. Yeah. That is completely, it as a boy. Adult, I just, that I didn't is completely me as an adult speaking. Part of your world probably was something I would have happily fast forwarded as a little boy. Yeah. But this song, no, this song was like the emotional core of the movie. It was like, oh, yeah, it does it, it 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 ends up doing more emotional work in this movie than those other songs do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and you I will think. Mo- I think. I think you're right. And, well, true. and it's a song about. It's not a song about we're sad. I think it's a simple. Although thing to, a whole new world actually does a whole lot of work plot wise for that movie. Yes. No. That's in a way that a whole new world actually might do the most to help a movie that would be weak otherwise. Yeah, it accomplishes a lot of work in the movie mm. it sets a romantic uh, romantic and emotional stakes that just don't exist really right. otherwise these characters are flat beyond this yeah. dynamic song but but in terms of actually encompassing the emotional weight of a movie i don't know that well arguably part of your world actually for adults at least does the same thing because ariel is yeah. such a brat and so like there's no grandeur to her desires but that song certainly does Make you feel like, oh, this is every teenager who's ever wanted to get out on her own. And blah, blah, blah. This is me. You know, bright young women, sick of swimming, ready to stand. Well, it's apples and oranges, but, but yeah, I, well, yeah, I was saying, I think it is crucial to note that a lot of movies get it wrong because they're like, this part is sad because a character is sad or something sad is happening. And that's wrong. What's, what moves us is actually, they should be sad, but, they're having hope anyway. Yeah. They're striving forward anyway. That's what actually makes you tear up. That's what actually connects you. That's why the song's so powerful. If the song was just, I'm sad because I'll never see my sister again, you actually would just feel punished and you might not shed a tear. But, right, but you have these two kids in this impossible situation and they're both hopeful. Right. And that's super sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a dad, I think the most sad moment of the movie is the minute... Papa Mouskowitz's hope is restored. Mm-hmm. That's really, I think, as a dad, kind of that soul-crushing moment, if it rises to that level, which I don't know that it does. But that's the moment as a dad where 
it's like, oh, like the minute you see his, he's like, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, you know, and then from then on, he's just like, because that hope's been rekindled, the, the desperation that's beneath it all. Mm-hmm. That's really tough. I think that's, that's true. Well, and I think that's why some people probably really resent somewhere out there is if you have a kid who's without being indelicate, if your brother died and he wasn't coming back. Right. And you want that hope to actually go away because you, and you feel you're like this movie's telling you everything's going to be all right, but it's not. That's what I'm sorry. We're not going to visit grandma this year. We're not going, we're not going to have another baby. It's whatever. That's where people, where he's and why not, people he's resent not out song. there somewhere. Right. He's not out there somewhere. That's where people, and then you don't have to have anything nearly as serious as a dead child. I, but that's the extreme example. But I think there's the reason the song could get under somebody's skin is that they're lying to you. It's not always true. Uh, but it is in this movie, and wouldn't it be nice if that's the way the world worked? And fairy tales are fairy tales for a reason. Anyway, speaking of fairy tales, the great fairy tale characters Gussie Meisheimer and Honest John, uh, all the Tammany Hall stuff is up next. Classic <laughs> characters. I, yeah, I mean, I, I hear everything you said about them before. I think if I can be permitted to make a defense Please. of them, they're specific enough that they live as just sort of weird, scary adults that you might encounter in a weird situation as a kid. Or just comic, like Lumiere and Cogsworth. Who are these guys? Yeah, so like Honest John, like, oh, we're going to go to this guy. Maybe he can help you. He's actually, to my eyes, just as scary and stinky and weird as everybody else I've dealt with. But whatever, I'm like with my big brother and his girlfriend. And Gussie Malzheimer is just like, what, weird patronizing old lady that you don't understand that who yeah. knows like you run into this lady at a funeral or at some weird event that your parents took you to for reasons <laughs> you don't understand. Or you see her at church every Sunday. Yeah. Or she's a church lady. Exactly. Which is, I think my placeholder for her is she's this random church lady who like, she's got her weird perfume and mm. her weird takes her weird sort of patronizing interest in you for reasons you maybe don't understand. And, you don't get it, but these people just sort of exist and weave in and out of your life. And Right. Exactly. Well, and cartoons understand, cartoons can do things that are really inappropriate. Like, what I'm trying to say is kids actually would process a woman through that, like that, through the giant enveloping bosom. <laughs> right. And <laughs> as an adult, you're not even allowed to notice that about somebody like that, but a cartoon can just do it. And it's fine, and it, it actually connects on a visceral level, like right. But then you have the moment where Honest John notices, right? <laughs> I was like, it's I don't pluck believe that feather off. The, you know, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Uh, why did like, you do that? I was like, I don't believe that he got away with it. It's oh my goodness, something. Well, I think let's see here. So, oh wowie. <laughs> She oh, is pretty funny. She yeah. made me laugh. Well, she's well, we just, the sequel weapon. That's Madeline Kahn. She's being asked to do the same accent she did. It's a Marlena Dietrich impression that she did for Blazing Saddles. So it's like all adult stuff, but it, kids don't care. And it works fine. So, and speaking of adult stuff, how about that weird comedian that was friends with Burt Reynolds and was just famous for being famous and appearing on talk shows and who even knows why he was famous? Dom DeLuise. He's all, in like I every know him one of Tiger the Cat. Yeah, no, he's in all those 90s. Well, he's in all, yeah, and he's in he's in Secret of Nim, he's in 
Maybe not Land Before Time. I don't think he's in Land Before Time, but he is, in fact, the titular eponymous troll in Central Park. He's the the troll. He obviously got along with with Don Bluth and or liked making a very easy paycheck. And uh, kids love Tiger the Cat. I mean, Dom Dole, it's funny. Like He's just one of those guys that you wouldn't even know his name except for that he appeared in some children's films that he'll probably always be remembered for. And that even more than Henri the Pigeon strikes me now as like, what? What? This is just the part in the movie where we need a comic character to really relieve the tension. And mm-hmm. so here he is. There's no real connective tissue. Like if you're telling the story properly, have Tiger come earlier so and, and be kind of a, a running thing, I, I think. Like l- let them make friends slower instead of just. Or have Henri be the one who. Is the through line. Of, is the through of line. The it comes and line. sets. If you need a way to get Fievel out of cat prison. Right. Which, who knows why we didn't just eat him. Right. Because we need the story to keep going. But if you need somebody to get Fievel out of cat prison. But it doesn't matter because Dom DeLuise is fun and cute and cuddly and they have a cute little song. Probably the works. least of the movie's songs as an adult song lover, but whatever. It is, it is completely random. There we do. <laughs> Whoa. So it's arbitrary. Well. Yeah. But Tiger, Tiger is every kid's favorite character. He's yeah. certainly the highlight of the sequel, and he's Tiger the Cat. What are you going to say? I love him. I loved him as a kid. Uh, f- okay. And we're going to ship the cats to Hong Kong. I mean, that's really the next thing is <laughs> Vincent Canby of the New York Times says, when at the end, Fievel and his pals devise a scheme to ship all cats to Hong Kong and effect to clean up New York. The trick is so humorously executed that one is likely to remember other attempts to force involuntary exile. <laughs> Critics just did not know how to process this movie. They're just like, what? <laughs> A giant mouse with fireworks, push them off the pier. They're going to jump out with parachutes. Yeah. It's... You don't even maybe notice that as a kid. Yeah, that, that, that was a crazy detail to pick up on now. But yeah. It's one of those weird movie things where it's like they make a plan and it works. It just kind of works. I mean, there's a little drama as to when to release the weapon and Honest John's trying to stop it. And But you kind of expect, like you have it, your story selling sense has it built in that somehow Warren T. Cat is going to get the better of them for a while and there's going to be another fight or something like that. But nope, time for the movie to be over. I guess... It's good, right? I mean, they're doing it because I think it's fine. The, the, the real yeah. drama is: Will Five will find his parents, not will this villain be defeated? So, uh-huh. yeah, Five will gets back. Five's plan gets put into motion. Five has a key hand and letting it go. And now we've got to just usher the villain, the villains off stage, so that we can resolve the real drama of this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. One thing I always liked about this movie is. Don Bluth is going to give you a tremendous amount of, in this case, literal fireworks. Like he just loves those lighting effects, mm-hmm. those, those light effects, whatever he's doing to animate them. He does that in all his movies. Yeah. And he's just going to be like, this is going to be like an awesome climactic action sequence for kids. Stuff's going to blow up. You're going to get this big protracted, awesome machine just killing the crud out of these cats. <laughs> and we're just going to watch all these explosions and rockets for like, it just felt like it went on and, and it's on. It's going to be really cathartic because we're going to see all the terrified expressions and all these cats. Mm. It was just and, uh, great. for the entire movie up until this point. They've just been snarling menaces that don't even look like cats. Mm. Yeah, and now they're just like 
Now they're just like ordinary, terrified little cats. <laughs> right. They've been reduced. Well, and warranty, Rad is wearing his nightshirt or whatever. Right? Yeah, he's yeah, just yeah. Kind of completely. I always loved that as no a kid. Intended. Yeah. Yeah, he's just going to give you something really satisfying. It felt like more, it, again, it wasn't the way a Disney movie would end. Unless mm. you're talking about Sleeping Beauty, I guess. Sleeping Beauty, you get a, an extended like yeah. pyrotechnic show. Well, and that's the best ending of any disney movie probably it's awesome yeah it's something a weirdly non-retributive for a kid's film ending for the cats no not that i expected them to drown or something but even watching the movie again i was like is there going to be some annoying human is it going to be like the john cleese thing like are they going to be dragged onto the ship and into cat servitude one way china is its own punishment right buddy. yeah it's, but warranty rats already <laughs> figuring out how he's gonna oh, i have to learn how to calculate in chinese <laughs> like, have the cockroach character okay yeah. i guess they're just gonna take their evil <laughs> ways to hong kong Great. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all right fellas there's plenty of mice in china or something yes. like that, he says. <laughs> yeah he's already sort of like eh. Oh, well, what's the next thing? Yeah, yeah. on to the next thing. I, I wasn't really a threatening <laughs> villain, and I didn't really get it that much of a punishment, but yeah, whatever. I'm, this part of the movie's done. <laughs> now Fievel goes into his dark space. He, ta- he talks to those orphans. Ah, parents are the worst. I don't know. You're what- right. <laughs> <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> I don't care either. He tries Man. to be tough. And that sequence always gets you yeah. as a kid. It works so well. And then, like any good Spielberg-produced joint, we're going to milk that final <laughs> reunite for all it's worth. They're going to go past each other a couple times and <laughs> in the mist. And then he's going to meet his sister, Philly and Tilly, together. The again. light's going to break through the mist. And-, mm-hmm. and you get the reunite with the sister and then you get the reunite with the dad it's like two different emotional beats and doesn't really matter about the other people but get a reaction from tiger a reaction from well gussie gets to hug the cat she's got no nobody to love and nobody loves her and that's (laughs) she never thought she'd hug a cat and then we get the very weird or ride a fee wine ride a fee wine we used to be able to do racial humor and People can't talk humor, whatever that's called. And then we get the weird ending that I'd completely forgotten where they all fly. Now we're all riding pigeons. We're all riding pigeons and including Tiger (laughs) (laughs) being carried by four. And he's like, oh, yeah, thanks, ladies. Uh." (laughs) (laughs) It's just dream logic. Yeah. Henri is going to. We need an upbeat thing that ties us all together and. I was being a little unkind earlier, I want to say, when I said this movie's depiction of America is completely lame. Because the fact that they can actually bind together across race, across species, actually, to defeat the menace, to fight back. It's a very American melting pot kind of idea. You have to, you don't just get handed something in America, You, but you do have the freedom to Claim your turf and then fight for it. Yeah. Make your own America. Make your own America. Yeah, all cats are evil from your perspective until you become friends with a cat. And right. then he's your best friend. <laughs> and all the cats that are bad... <laughs> you, are totally bad. You drive them into the ocean. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Send them packing. And so the Statue of Liberty winks at you. Yay, America. And there's all that land out there. And that's also America. Mm-hmm. And can we go see it? Someday you will. And so now we've got hope for a sequel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sell a million five-volt toys and 
have Linda Ronsat singing somewhere out there over the credits because she was George Lucas's girlfriend. So everybody gets a check. Don Bluth gets to make land before time. We get an iconic film from our childhood. Ben, how many... Hats? Hats. (laughs) (laughs) How many mouses of mints? Mice of Mints, out of 43, do you give to An American Tale? 36. 36. So yeah. fairly high. Yeah, I think that's only, about right. Only deducting about five Mice of Mints there? Uh, seven. Seven? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I never claimed to be a mathematician. And why? What is the deduction is just... I, I Some of the... Ar- just the sheer arbitrariness of the movie fact that it's not so much a movie for me it's a movie for me in connection with my kids right or it's a movie for me as a kid right it doesn't quite transcend jake no how many mice of minsk i think 36 sounds good hmm? 36 mice of, mice of minsk and are, are you deducting for the same reasons or i deduct what, what were your reasons again just it's just that it doesn't become a story for me it's just a story no. for me in connection with my kid or as a no, kid. No, I don't deduct for the same reasons. I I deduct because... You love cats. Because I'm a cat person. You're no. a cat person. Because who wants a movie with such emotional weight? How often do you want something? It's sort of like It's a Wonderful Life. You know. That's fair. Every Christmas, Jake. Every Christmas. The answer. <laughs> nope. Not every, every Christmas. No, I don't watch it every Christmas anymore. I can't. I guess I haven't been. It's too much. Last time I watched it was for this podcast. Same. And we... My, my my wife and me sat there and cried from the Time opening starts. to the end. I mean, it was <laughs> yep. pathetic. <laughs> I want to do what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> All that stuff is so brutal when you're an actual adult that <laughs> maybe has a little feeling of George Bailey in your life. And in any case, we're not here to arbitrate that. What do I want to do? I'll give it 36. Wow. Uh, has this ever happened before? I feel no. like No. It's I mean, I'm deducting seven just because I guess I'm kind of with Ben. It doesn't quite cross the boundary into being a successful adult movie for me. I look forward to showing it to my kids. I think I'll enjoy experiencing it through their eyes and probably will have even more emotion connected to the idea of losing kids and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Watching it with them, I think it's a good movie. I think it's a weird movie. I think it Don Bluth's weird sensibilities crossed with Spielberg's commercial sensibilities crossed with Spielberg's desire to tell this Jewish story crossed with the commercial inability to actually tell a Jewish story just makes for a movie that is pretty bizarre actually. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But it's amazing how much you don't think of it as being bizarre. It just works. The score is great. We didn't really mention that. Just, yeah, the score just is great. The, James, the great James Horner, man. sadly no longer with us, but beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, I love the violin motif. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty potent aspect of the movie. Yeah. They're great, and the songs, while not quite Mink and Ashman level, are good. They're mm-hmm. memorable. They're pretty memorable. Yeah. yeah, the Tiger Duet, not so much, but Never Say Never is a good uplift song, and mm-hmm. Somewhere Out There is obviously a classic. Ballad and are those the only three? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, there you go. That and just the constant Fievel's theme. Yeah. Wait. No, and No Cats in America. Oh, No Cats in America is obviously a classic of its type. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we could have used one more song. I would have taken another song. Do any of them rise to the level of you can't keep a good dog down? 
You can't keep a good dog down. That's all dogs could have. <laughs> you can keep a good dog down. Well, you, Carface Carruthers went to hell at the end of that movie. I think he was kept down. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> After he was eaten by an alligator or drowned or something. What a weird. Uh... We did not spend enough time talking about how weirdly sickening and queasy of a movie All Dogs Go to Heaven is. I watched that as a kid and I was like kind of horrified. And not in a fun way. <laughs> no, nothing fun about that movie. Kids like to be scared. They like to be traumatized. They like dark stuff. They know that there's a bigger world out there and they want to find out about it. But not in the way that all dogs go to heaven. Yeah, that it. movie sucks. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Don Bluth minus Spielberg kind of sucks. And or whoever wrote the novel, Mrs. Frisbee and the Brats of Nim. Do you know who the author of... Nim was Robert O'Brien. Yep, I I, I liked uh, I liked his other books, actually. I'm sure they're great. People should read them. I don't but know about that. Everyone should read them, and then and if you don't like it, tell Benzels or why. All right. Any other thoughts about Thanks. American Tale, gentlemen? No. Mm-mm. Are we happy that it's spelled T A I L? Yes. Sure. I'm not. I wish it was spelled T A L E. I think it's a stupid pun, and you know my well found a hatred of puns on this podcast i'm going with spielberg on this one i'm going with spielberg well he was very excited about it all right all right go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies to support this podcast we are so close to being able to do the burton batmans and reeve donner superman and we're about 36 dollars away from it as i record record this this episode we're recording a little bit in advance so i hope we've already made it by the time we record this, but I'd really like to do those in quarter one or quarter two of 2023. So make it happen, people, please. Speaking of people who make it happen, let's talk about Ryan and Judith, our Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness winners. What is it that makes Ryan and Judith such great folk? Would you guys say? Uh, oh. If their kid was lost, they would go find him. I'd expect nothing less. I think Ryan would keep playing his violin. Everywhere he went, he'd annoy people yep. because he'd play his violin just in the odd hope that maybe somewhere out there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. his son might hear him. Well, that sounds really annoying. I hope his kid doesn't get lost because then we'll have to put up with a lot of violin. That's what heroes do. They don't care. That's true. They're willing to be annoying. The chance that son might hear it might be rescued. They'll annoy you. I'll take that. Yeah. But you know what else Ryan would do? <clears throat> he would be such a good father that his kid would be, little Ryan Jr. would be so well disciplined he would not go up on that boat to see the fish. Yeah. He'd just be like, yes, Papa, I will come back to you immediately. So we just it just wouldn't happen. So you can put away that violin, Ryan. And we can all put away our violins because this sad discussion about this sad movie is over. Until next time. Oh, dear. <laughs> never say never. <laughs> I'm